0: It is in, losers. This is the Lady Killers, a feminine rage podcast. I'm Jen. I'm Sammy.
2: I'm Rocco.
3: And I'm May. Our podcast is a tribute to the female-identifying killers in horror and more.
0: Each episode will feature us, your Supreme Court of female murderers, discussing our favorite lady killers, from your Julias and Jennifers to your Carries and Christines
2: will tell her story, decide if it's good for her horror, and answer the most important question of all. Would we die for her? Join us on Thursdays as we pull on our sweaters, snatch our ice picks, sharpen our scissors, and honor the lady killers who live on the silver screen.
0: No boys were harmed in the making of this
1: podcast. Yet. Yet. <laughs> <laughs>
4: There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. Do you want to die, Sydney? It's your turn to scream, asshole.
5: From the streets of Woodsboro.
2: Back to the streets of Woodsboro. We are Halloweenies!
4: Began with a scream over 911. Greetings and welcome to another season of Halloweenies Horror Franchise Podcast. Hey, we hope you like scary movies because we'll be dedicating this season to the Scream franchise. Now, we'll obviously be diving into each of the four existing movies as well as dropping updates regarding the forthcoming film Scream, not to be confused with Scream, but there will be special episodes in between where we will be entering our Randy Recommends section now. These will be movie episodes that are either specifically referenced in the Scream entry or have many similarities with one of the movies. What am I talking about? You'll have to wait and see. I am one of your co-hosts, Roger L. Justin Gerber. And wow, do we have a show for you because we are talking all things 1996 Scream. A movie directed by Wes Craven and written by Kevin Williamson. So... Let's go around and discuss the first time we remember seeing Scream. And, you know, let's start off with our our special guest. She's reporting in from her incredible-looking room with an incredible Ghostbusters uh, backdrop.
3: (laughs) Hello, this is Rachel Reeves reporting in live for Top Story. Kind of, sort of, Pacific Northwest Division. (laughs) The vaunted
4: Pacific Northwest Division of of Top Story.
3: Yes, yes. (laughs) Um... So the first time I saw Scream, I did not see it in the theater. I think I was a little too young, but I rented the VHS uh, for my local Albertsons. They, I was very drawn in by the covers. At that time, I, I feel like I was just, you know, the right preteen age to just all those. Yeah, the Scream and I know what you did last summer and the faculty, all those things that came out in the wake of Scream just was everything I was dreamed of and I just thought those covers were just so sexy so that's what I picked up Scream and it blew my mind and continues to blow my mind and I'm really excited to hear what you guys are gonna say about it because I've seen it a million times but every time I watch it there's something new there's different ways you can watch it and it just never ceases to amaze me how just awesome it is so yeah excited to dive into it.
4: Awesome. Yeah, I think we're all going to agree for the most part. I don't think anybody's going to stand up and say, actually, uh, Scream's a bad movie. Yeah, I all We're safe on this episode, I'm pretty sure. Now let's uh, head over to um, my brother, literally my brother. Who is this?
5: This is Wolfman Mac, Wes Williamson Gerber. And wow. uh, I a- had <laughs> the longest name of all time. A lot of references. I think that uh, the first time I saw Scream was on the big screen. And that was I. I want to say there was a Dollar Theater in South Chase in That's Orlando, correct. Florida. I'm blanking on the name of it. I think we just got to the Dollar Theater. I can't. I South really Chase can't Cinema. remember South Chase Cinema. And I I remember going in and sat like maybe ten rows back from the front, so I, it was a pretty uh, all encompassing uh, film viewing. But, man, I, I loved every minute. And I think I walked into the movie, like, it, right when the Scream logo came up. Like, I mean, I walked in right when it was starting. I must have missed all the trailers because I remember that vividly. But, yeah, I, I I loved it. It it really fueled the fire for my love of horror. I mean, I had been watching a lot of the classics and stuff before that. But that's when I was, like, I felt like I was in like in the club at that point because I was watching fans of horror talk about horror and reference all these movies on, you know, and I was like, Oh my God, like these are my people, you know, like it was just really fun. Yeah.
4: Did you, did you, I guess you must've had to sneak in. I don't remember I saw it with you because you had been only 12 years old when that movie came out. So I can't remember how you, yeah,
5: definitely, definitely sneaking into those dollar movies at South chase. They weren't, they weren't policing it very well.
4: (laughs) That's a good point. Now we'll get to my similar story shortly, but let's head on down to the, uh, the South side of this lovely city of chicago and who is
2: this hello there ladies and gentlemen hello there ladies and gents this is mike i spit on your garage vanderbilt coming (laughs) to you live from the south side of chicago now i can probably narrow this down to the date like the first time i saw this and i think it was thursday december 26th 1996 (laughs) because i still don't know why i didn't see this opening weekend for the life of me because i had read about it in entertainment weekly when it was still called scary movie back that september and i've been looking forward to it and i think i just thought it was going to flop and it was going to end up on home video in no time uh, me and my friends piled into uh my uh buddy matt keisha's he was drove his dad's 77 lincoln town car which is a about the size of a bus and I went to sony theaters crestwood and Got packed house because this was one of the first movies that I can remember. One of the only movies I can remember that I was, you know, I was 16 and really into movies. And I uh, remember the box office, it premiered low, like, you know, seven or eight. And you never saw a movie shoot up. You only ever saw it go down, but word of mouth being so strong. So I remember kids at school talking about it, that it went back up to like number two or even number one, I think by the next weekend. And I knew I can still remember sitting in the theater after it was over. And I knew I'd seen something special and it became one of my favorite horror movies of all time.
4: I mean, my story is pretty similar. I, this was, uh, I, I was definitely well into my love of horror at this point, you know, years earlier, I'd got into Friday and Halloween, all of those Elm street, obviously. I I vividly remember going to see this at South Chase. I, I don't know if I saw it with you, Mac. I feel like I saw this just with a bunch of friends. We were maybe
5: even, I snuck in be, with you. I don't. I mean, maybe, maybe I, I maybe I was sneaking in, and
4: you guys were the legit. I mean, I, I saw this multiple times in theaters, so it's possible we also went a different time together. Yeah. But it was such a great communal experience. It felt like I knew everybody in the theater from my high school. And I'll never forget that. I, I, people that weren't even necessarily friends, just like friends acquaintances people that I, I had a class with, people that I saw in the hallways. I feel like we were all there together. And I just remember the movie like exploding off the screen. Like I remember people laughing at specific parts, especially the uh, my parents are going to kill me line at the, in the climax. Like I, oh, I vividly yeah, remember everybody erupting in laughter. <laughs> and I realized like then and then, I was like, oh, this is actually going to be something. Even as a kid. Yeah. I was like, this is going to is really capturing something that's going beyond just fans of horror, but Entering into the into the mainstream in the way it hadn't done in, in years and years, in a, a as long we'll talk time. about later.
2: Yeah. I, the wine, I think the wine – I mean, for whatever whatever you say about the wine scene, we'll just talk about Bob. We won't even talk about the other one. Uh, yeah, funny enough, Bob is the most involved. <laughs> thank God. Putting, <laughs> it, put, putting it out that that uh, December 20th, when everybody's on winter break. Mm-hmm. That's a stroke of genius.
4: Yeah. I mean – it's, what's funny enough is that this, this movie went through an absolute production hell, which we will definitely <laughs> be discussing uh, maybe the most of anything in this episode. It is, it's fascinating because I was doing the notes for this and I thought, oh my God, there's just so much here. Because, you know, in years past, we're covering these, you know, these hit horror movies, but you know, they're pretty much independent movies and they're pretty much being left alone to do whatever the hell they want, you know? But this is just, you know, oversight, 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 hell. And fortunately, as we'll also discuss... It seemed to have worked out. So, yeah, let's move on to our next section. Funny enough, we have a correspondent from this uh, organization, and it's a (laughs) section (laughs) that we call Top Story.
5: Hi, this is Gail Weathers with an exclusive eyewitness account of this amazing breaking story.
4: Of course, you know, last year for Friday the 13th, I would always joke, okay, well, the news this week is that there's absolutely no news. Well, guess what? (laughs) I have a feeling that there's going to be news every single month leading up to Next year's Scream, a.k.a. Scream 5. And yeah, there's a Scream movie that's already been made. It's shot. It's in the bank. It's waiting to come out. And it's it's smart of them to to wait until next year when I'm pretty certain at that point, God willing, we will all be able to go back to the theaters again.
2: I can't say anything about it. I've been wrong about everything during this whole thing. So I'm just going to keep my fucking mouth shut. They didn't want
4: to run into a a No Time to Die where you're delaying it six times and then the momentum is just... Shrinking violently Gosh, no joke
2: I was I wish they put it around, out around Christmas Well, it's, close. it's pretty Instead close Instead of January
4: But here's what we do know So let's run through this real quick Filming did wrap in North Carolina Last year I can't believe it's done, it's crazy The main trio of Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, and David Arquette are all back Including... Apparently a fan favorite from Scream Four, Marley Shelton. We'll talk about that character later on. Rachel, are you familiar with the Scream Four that well? Do you remember Marley Shelton's character? She's like, she was I think she's a cop in it.
3: Hey, yeah, I haven't seen it in a really long time, but I feel like I definitely need to revisit it, and probably will because of this podcast. But oh yeah, I mean, I yeah. have like such you know, they just love her so much. And so it's like, I must be missing something because I don't remember having that sort of initial reaction, but I'm, I'm glad to see it. Like, it's exciting <laughs> that some, you know, people are pulling from other films in the franchise and not yeah. just, you know, the the core group. So, I, I mean, I do think Agreed. that's really cool. And I I just, I need to check it out again, see
2: what I'm missing, <laughs> I guess. It is pretty good in Scream 4. I just watched it yeah. recently. Uh, memorable, I would say.
5: Kind of like the the new Dewey Deputy... Let's like, yes. go get him, kind of character, and uh, yeah, I I enjoyed that addition to the cast for sure. So that's cool that she's coming back.
4: Well, she's back, which is which is good. So, I mean, we've got a cast of characters whose names pay tribute to John Carpenter and Wes Craven. We'll leave it at that. A couple of children of famous stars are in this. I know Jack Quaid is in it, Dennis Quaid, Meg Ryan's son. Oh yeah, and there's another child of a star in it, and we'll save that for a future episode, AKA. I didn't write it in these specific notes. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Now, the movie itself is written by James Vanderbilt, whose filmography is pretty bad, but then Zodiac is also there somehow. No no relation. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Like, Zodiac had in, like, 19 mid-tier movies. And also Guy Busick. Now, not to be confused with Gary Busey. Busick is best known for co-writing a little movie called Ready or Not. And what's the significance there, anybody?
3: I mean that movie is amazing
4: <laughs> that's that's one but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what are you getting at <laughs> directed by matt Bethnelli Open and tyler gillett who comprise the duo radio silence and who are directing scream five there oh, we go all right i forgot about that
2: there you go uh the hot new trend uh duo director director duos we got the duffer brothers the guys who did pet cemetery
4: and of course the coen brothers <laughs>
2: <laughs> Those new guys, the Coen yeah, Brothers, yeah,
4: right. arriving on the scene.
3: The people that do like Turbo Kid, I think it's a trio actually, but yeah, same kind
2: of. Yeah. thing. yeah. And Astron Six is like a collective of guys who every kind of shares duties. It feels like
4: I'm part of the Nosferatu Trinity. No, I'm kidding. I'm not part of any cool directing trilogy. Um, too bad. So, <laughs> where? Let's. Let, I want to ask everybody here. Because, you know, so often we, we say, "Oh, will let these franchises die or let them come back to life. So where does everybody stand on what we know right now and how do we feel about another Scream movie coming out, uh, McKenzie? I'm, I'm kind of ready for it. I feel like these seemingly each sequel has
5: kind of had a purpose and I don't know what the point of this movie is going to be like, you know, you, you got the first one's just. About horror movies in general. Then you have the sequel being about horror sequels. And then the third about being the trilogy. How do you close the trilogy? And then you have the remake situation. So it's like, what they, is this going to be a reimagining? Is it not going to be like, who's Ghostface? But are there going to be multiple Ghostface? Like, what are they going to do to make this fresh? So I'm interested to see, because they've always tried to do something a little bit more. And definitely have a commentary on whatever sequel it is. You know what I mean? So... I'm really interested to see what they do, but I'm ready for it. You know, these movies have come out so sporadically, uh, you know, I guess after three that I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm ready. It's not like, it's not like Saw. It's not like we're getting a new movie every single month, you know? (laughs) So yeah, I'm I'm very, very curious.
4: Vanderbilt, where do you stand on this? Because sometimes you're very much let these movies die, but where are you?
2: We shall see. I mean, I'm going to go see it. It's cool. It's coming back, but I don't know what else it could do because now I haven't revisited stream two in a while, but I just don't think the series ever came close to touching the first film. Oh, what? I don't know what, I don't know what they could do with you know a fourth sequel this round. Let's take it something like truly meta. I don't know. Like uh, if your place in bets, like we've discussed, are they doing like the, are they doing a meta take on the uh, kind of asinine idea of a reboot with the same title as the original film? Are they going to Are they going to get really kind of mean spirited about that, which I would appreciate? Or maybe are they going to do something about uh, how fandom has changed since 1996 with uh, something about horror Twitter or whatever uh, website they make up for the movie? If this is a thing, I don't know. There's a lot of cool ways they can do it, but they could also whiff on this real bad.
4: They could. I mean, Richard, what about you? Where do you stand on this?
3: I mean, I'm really excited about it. I've heard some things that have kind of built my excitement somewhere. I either heard or read that, you know, Nev Campbell was really hesitant about coming back into the project. And, you know, she notoriously has such a reverence for Wes Craven and such a good relationship with him that she didn't want to do anything that would kind of tarnish his legacy, you know, or not be true to the spirit of what he kind of helped create. So you know, she. From what I understand, she read the script and really, you know, met with the directors and felt like they got it. And so, I'm putting a lot of eggs in that basket. The fact that she went to those lengths, and I believe that that's true, that she is willing to sign on and feels like it's it fits with the rest of what the franchise has brought. So, I'm I'm excited to see it. I actually have probably more excitement going into this one than I did, you know, the Halloween reboot, which, I mean, historically, I feel like I like the Halloween franchise a little bit more than the Scream franchise, if I had to be honest with myself. So I, to me, that is kind of different. Like, Oh, I'm actually like really stoked about seeing this and seeing what they do with it, because I think that it's a franchise that allows for a lot of opportunities. And I hope that they take advantage of that for sure.
4: Yeah, I was looking into this, thinking about how fresh it could still be. And it's crazy that there will be a Scream movie in four different decades, which is insane to think about. Because you had, what, Scream 1 and 2 were in the 90s, Scream 3 was in the aughts, Scream 4 was in the teens, and now Scream 5 will be in the 20s. I think that's one more decade than even the Friday 13th movies had. And the Nightmare on Elm Street movies have had, which is crazy.
5: Yeah, and something that's like, honestly truly special about this franchise is like it's legit like the continuity is insane and the the main stars have been in every movie you know what i mean it's not like there was a, a there was a one-off where they tried to do something and then they, the stars came back like no like they have consistently no, no shitty direct video through.
2: sequels yeah. yeah 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 exactly i mean i this mean you've, got, like the
5: scream, you've got the screen you've got the screen tv tv show <laughs> you got the scream tv show but like but this is but the films have always been major releases and they've always had the main cast and I I'm like racking my brain trying to think of something uh, oh. another horror franchise that's gotten to the fifth film and still had this.
2: Mac, it's kind of like the Michael Apthead's up of the of horror cinema. <laughs> where we <laughs> get to check in years. with the characters every ten years or so and see how there's they're doing a,
4: There's Scream Sunset, Scream Sunrise, and Scream Midnight. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I do like this idea of coming back and seeing where everybody is, and it is rare. I mean, obviously, in, in earlier franchises we've covered, you know, Nancy comes back, Tommy comes back, Alice comes back, but these movies are much more about the heroes than they are even about the villains. I feel, I feel like that's where all the affection yeah. is really towards. Right? It's towards Nev Campbell and and Courtney Cox and David Arquette, and then the people who sadly die in earlier entries. And I think that's the unique thing about covering this franchise this year is we're going to be able to dive into that a little bit more. And with every movie, you know, on Friday the 13th, it feels like a brand new season, essentially, because we're a brand new casting crew, you know. <laughs> it's basically everybody's starting fresh again. But this is going to have the same director. Well, not the same writer, unfortunately. We'll get, we'll deal with that later on. But, you know, same producers, same crew, more or less, and, you know, the same, the same cast, same voices. So it's going to be pretty fascinating. But I am uh, cautiously optimistic, and I think right now, because there is so much goodwill towards radio silence um, on the internet right now, there's not a lot of pessimism. I don't think going on right now about this movie. You know, again, it's gonna have been, it's been ten years since Scream Four, which is crazy to think about. I am looking forward to it. I will say, again, I'm sure you can go look back at our Halloween season, and I'm sure I said the same thing, cautiously optimistic about the upcoming <laughs> Scream movie. But the sad thing, obviously, is I think they were gonna. Scream 4 was supposed to kick off a new trilogy, according to Kevin Williamson. And obviously, when Wes Craven passed away, that put the kibosh in that. He just didn't feel comfortable continuing on. I'm curious to see what that would have been. Uh, Scream 4 was not a huge hit in terms of box office, but we'll, we'll talk about that later on. Yeah. Because it has developed a bit of a cult audience of its own. Especially on horror Twitter, which I know is only like 20% of the, of the world, but still. <laughs> you know, we're we're travels, it means, it means something, right? It means something. Rachel, I agree though with the whole Nev Campbell thing. I hope that when she was saying all those things, like racks and racks of bills weren't being shoved her way. <laughs>
2: like, yeah. yeah, well, that's that's like, the <laughs> thing. Like uh, John Carpenter, Ah Halloween oh, Kills, yeah. Ultimate Slasher Movie. Keep giving me those checks, guys. Come on.
4: He's playing like you know Metal Metal Gear Solid or whatever, and <laughs> watching Lakers.
2: Yeah,
5: I, I I would love to believe that, but I I've also it. What's scary is that how many times have you heard like, oh. "Well, I didn't want to come back," but then I read the script. You know what I mean, yeah, so it's like. No. However, you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm being optimistic. Not even cautiously
4: optimistic.
2: <laughs> Bad Boys for Life was great, and that movie had a fucking witch in it. And that's probably a sequel that was ten <laughs> years too late. Wow. That movie, that, was, that
4: movie was twenty years after Bad Boys Two from like. Oh Jesus!
2: Call. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That's that's insane.
4: You think you think you had to wait long for a Scream movie? Think about that for a second. All right, well, let's move on to our next section here. We're going to be discussing the the crew behind the scenes magic slash nightmares of the making of Scream 1996 in a section that we're calling Woodsboro Police Station.
2: Okay, everybody listen up. Let me just say uh, the killing of these these teenagers has been tragic. But uh, hey, you know, shit happens. But
4: oh, my God, folks, I've got so many notes here. Feel free to interrupt, uh, cut me off, be rude, <laughs> add in your own tidbits as I blaze through. But uh, let's, let's start off with this. I uh, This research researching. There was an interview a few years ago with Kevin Williamson. I think it was on Entertainment Tonight, which used to mean something, by the way, back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> when, I was, when, when I was young. And he had this to say. He said, every generation has that one movie. And at the time, there were no other horror movies in the mid-90s the ones that were coming out they weren't very exciting i wanted to write the movie and make the movie that i wanted to see because it wasn't going to be made and i felt like this was it it was just the time for it and when you do think about the mid 90s he makes a pretty good point right i mean
2: let's talk a little bit about those movies that those horror movies that were released in 1996 we'll say specifically carnosaur 3 primal species
4: I feel like the series peaked with Carnosaur 2, but.
2: Children. children uh, Gene Siskel gave, well, he didn't give it a good review, but according to the Carnosaur box, he gave it a good review. Uh, the original Carnosaur. Okay, I was going to say, hold on. Yeah. <laughs> children of the Corn 4, The Gathering. With the, uh, I believe starring Naomi Watts. Yes, it does. Very possible. <laughs> yes, it does. Hellraiser Bloodline, which a uh, movie I actually do enjoy. I can't believe it's 1990, and also a Dimension film, by the way. Yeah, well, Dimension yeah. Films, I think, was kind of, I, mean, I mean, we'll talk about it a little bit later. That was kind mm-hmm. of like my Bloomhouse in 1996. Sure, sure. Poltergeist, the legacy. Wait, that was a movie? I thought that was a TV show. Uh, well, I, you know, it was a film. This is in how Canada. bad it was. There weren't <laughs> enough movies to talk about. <laughs> Trilogy <laughs> just, of Terror Two, yeah, Tremors Two, um, a handful of you know, ones. of the year started out with From Dusk Till Dawn, which mm. I I think holds up as a great one to frighteners. Mm. But those are kind of like. They're not, I don't want to say, you know, once you just start uh, debating genre, you lose, but. Well, you know what they're not. They're not, they're not slasher movies. Yeah. From Dusk Dawn has like that crime element. The Frighteners is kind of a fantastical comedy at times. And The Craft came out that year too. So it wasn't all bad, but yeah, kind of.
5: It it was, it was a reemergence, I feel, of like a a specific type of horror that was coming out. Yeah. I I mean, none of that I wouldn't say any of that was like the end all be all of that decade. You know what I mean?
4: I mean, at this point, I feel like horror, we knew of as mainstream horror, right, was kind of trickling into becoming psychological thrillers. Because a few years before that, Silence of the Lambs comes out. Yeah. And that begat Seven, and then Seven baguette, every grimy movie over the next 10 years. <laughs> including uh, The Little Things that just came out in 2021. <laughs> with, uh, oh, God. There's oh, a Washington and, and oh, yeah. Golden Globe nominee Jared Leto. Oh, jeez. So basically, but I think the reason is, is because, and this is this was discussed a lot on Friday the 13th, is that kind of like all the tricks of 80s horror movies had been revealed at this point. There wasn't much more you could really do without seeming like you were just repeating the same formula over and over again. So for me, looking back, it just seemed natural that the next step would be to embrace that knowledge and then see what you can get away with.
3: It really felt like Horror was having a little bit of an identity crisis at the time. You know, all these giant franchises, you know, were getting all this money thrown at them, but they didn't really know what to do with them. And then when those kind of began to, you know, perform... Less and less. <laughs> well, they, it's like the studios didn't know what to do, like what to do next, or where to put their money, or who to invest in. And that's the result is just all these like yeah. mediocre films. And I think that plays into the thriller thing that you're saying, like that became the next sort of. Trend that they were writing, but horror itself just it's like
2: nobody knew what to do with it. And they had the studios had killed off the two big boys on the black in the early 90s, they'd killed off Freddie and Jason, and for better or worse, just kept cranking out Michael Myers movies. Yeah, another dimension picture. That's right.
4: Yeah, yeah.
2: So, let's let's continue this
4: on with Kevin Williamson. So, he was actually working on. A script for a movie called Teaching Mrs. Tingle, which did ultimately come out, which I also saw in theaters, which we will probably not be talking about on the Halloweenies uh, <laughs> podcast. But you know what? Patreon, you never know. You never
2: yeah, but know. It was a, he was writing it under script Killing Mrs. Tingle, though.
4: No. Yes, which I believe that was going to be the title, but columbine I believe Columbine happened. Yes. And that changed a lot in Hollywood, including the name of that particular movie. So speaking of titles, Kevin Williamson realized he needed to make some money quick and... Despite the fact that horror was on this in this really weird period, he started working on a script for a movie that was then called Scary Movie. And I remember that title for later on, by the way, <laughs> as well as outlines for two potential sequels. And Mike Vanderbilt, much like you, I do vividly remember. Re- I think I read this in like Fangoria. That that Wes Craven was working on a movie called Scary Movie.
2: Oh, I was so excited for it too. And when I heard yeah, I was definitely. I was into Friends, so seeing like Courtney Cox was involved, that was a big deal for me. And I will say right now, the fact that like I read the same thing that you know Kevin Williamson had this loose outline of a trilogy laid out. I believe him more than George Lucas when it comes to Star Wars. Oh, that sure. he actually that he actually had a concept oh, he for these a, three yeah. movies. Yeah. Well,
4: I think especially when we get to stream three. Yeah. Which, you want to talk about production hell, uh, we can... It's a little teaser for everybody who doesn't know about the Scream 3 nightmare. <laughs> so, you know, Hollywood, 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 businesses, businesses, businesses. The movie finally ends up at Miramax, and their horror division, kind of like their supernatural division, dimension films.
2: I wanted to delve into something, a quick aside. Uh, one of the things that he based, that Kevin Williamson based his script off of, was The Gainesville Ripper. Mm-hmm. who was a serial killer down in Florida. And there's an interesting aside that it was underground comics artist Mike Diana who had done the Boiled Angel series. He was a, he was a suspect in the case because of his comics. Mm-hmm. And there's a pretty great documentary made about him, directed by Frank Henenlotter, who did, of course, Basket Case and... Frank Hooker. Hooker.
4: Breckenhoek coming soon to Halloween East. Yeah.
2: So there is, there's some basis in reality on Scream, but there wasn't, it wasn't like horror movie stuff. It was just kind of the, the concept of murders.
4: And that's obviously touched on, especially in the finale of Scream with what influences what, and Indeed. Yeah, we can talk about that too. So at this point, everybody was approached. I think Danny Boyle was even approached at this point. This is right before, this is probably right after Shallow Grave, but before Train Spotting, And according to the great Bob Weinstein, it didn't, uh, People just didn't quite kind of get the concept. I, did, I definitely didn't read that off of Wikipedia, by the way. Wes Craven was approached. He was kind of flirting with this movie for a while, too, but he was going to be doing a remake of The Haunting,
1: mm-hmm.
4: which yes. obviously fell through, thank God. And thank God yon picked up that mantle and <laughs>
2: <laughs> five years later. You know who was else considered, he told us in his interview, was Tommy McLaughlin. Who had done, uh, oh, yeah. done Friday the 13th Lives. Part 6, Jason Lives, which another quick aside, I feel like there's several movies that I think people need to watch to kind of see what was in the DNA of Scream. And it's Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives.
4: And I bet you there's a Dennis uh, Christopher movie.
2: Oh, yeah. Fade to Black. Yeah, there Fade you go. to Black. Evil Laugh from 1986, which you and I discussed by Dominic. uh, (laughs) Dominic Brasca, who played uh, Joey in Friday the 13th Part 5 and co-written by Stephen Bayo, the other Bayo brother. Complicated duo. But it features a character. uh, It features this actor, Gerald Pearson, as Barney, a med student horror fan who reads uh, Fangoria. He's reading a Fangoria with Friday the 13th Part 5 through the whole movie. And he makes meta references to horror movies, why everybody's going to get killed off. And then, uh, of course, Student Bodies, National Lampoon's Class Reunion, and there's nothing out there uh, which has the same similar thing where there's a character like Randy who has seen all these movies and knows what's going to happen. Although I will say that Sc- these movies are in Scream's DNA, but Scream does do it better than all of them. Except maybe Friday the 13th Part 6. That gives it a run for the money.
4: That's a pretty terrific movie, which we've definitely discussed on this podcast. I think Scream is... Easily the most mainstream of all those. And indeed. And obviously, indeed. it's the most money-making as well. If <laughs> we want to go commercial speaking, I mean, that's, inc- that's insane. Let's run through this too, because this movie did go through production hell. You can read all about it, folks. But let me just run through this. If I leave anything out, please jump in. <laughs> the Weinsteins wanted to fire Craven multiple times during the shoot. Bob Weinstein didn't like the mask. They didn't like the dailies for the opening. They ended up changing the title like, last minute, I mean, this whole production was, it was known as Scary Movie, and they changed it to Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson's Disapproval.
2: Arguably a better title.
4: Scream or Scary Movie? Scary Movie. Oh, I, I think they, they ended up making movies called Scary Movie about Scream, <laughs> deliberately. Uh, I mean, this movie, they got sued by Sony because the title <laughs> of Scream bore too close a resemblance to the movie Screamers. Dan oh, O'Bannon's Screamers starring... Peter, Peter Weller, Weller. and yeah. oh man, I forgot the actor's name. Jennifer, <laughs> what, what's her name? Jennifer from Nightmare on Elm Street Part Three. Oh the, yeah, that's right. The punk rocker, the who had the Jennifer Rubin. Yeah. No, Jennifer Rubin.
2: Yeah. yeah, Jennifer Rubin. You, know, you know, what's fascinating about that case is that props to them that Hammer didn't sue them for you know Scream I, and Scream Again or any other movie that came out, any other horror movie that had Scream in the title Scream black, over the past scream. thirty years. Yeah, I, I, I hear you, Screamers. Or not Screamers. uh, Yeah, there's another Screamers from, like, the early 80s. Well,
4: there's also the Screamers from, what you mentioned it, Tremors 2 Aftershocks. That's what they call the the worms that come out of the ground and jump around. They call them the Screamers.
3: So there's one thing about Wes Craven that I think is really, I thought it was really interesting. So, you know, he passed on this project multiple times before Mm -hmm. finally accepting it. And I was watching on the Blu-ray set of Scream, there's this, like, documentary called, the inside story and Whoa. He, he was uh, there was an interview with him and he was saying how he passed on it because he had kind of built this whole career on killing women <laughs> and he mm. felt that like he was going into this kind of misogynistic territory that he didn't really feel he was feeling like it was starting to define him and he didn't really know how he felt about that So he didn't really want to do horror films anymore, especially with a female as the lead kind of focus of this killer. However, once, you know, Drew Barrymore signed on to it, that convinced him to do it. And I I just thought that was so interesting because I feel like you see that concern Kind of bleed through so much into how he handles Sydney and how he handles the female characters in the film, and I I had never heard him talk about that before. So just hearing him like kind of acknowledge and say like it was a concern to him, like it really just—I mean, everybody loves Wes Craven. Everybody talks about how amazing and kind he is, but just like I don't know, seeing him say that on an interview, I was like, damn, that's really that's really cool. And I think that that influenced how Scream turned out, like. Immensely, I
4: think. It makes total sense because the movie he does before this is (laughs) Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which is a commentary on the slasher movement. It's a commentary on do horror movies influence children to do bad things? You know, what's the story there? And the whole Nancy Thompson character and how she was treated by fans and what who was who was responsible for what? Are there are there motives? Does there there have to be a motive? You know, you
2: you neglected one movie in between a movie that I actually that I actually happen to enjoy. But
4: Vampire in Brooklyn, right?
2: I love it. Oh, yeah. Hell, yeah. It's Vampire in Brooklyn.
4: Vampire in Brooklyn. Not not an awful movie by any means. I thought it was pretty good. I I, I really take it back. It It was not it was not
5: awful. The tone of that movie is all over the place, though.
4: It really is. Pretty fun, though. Yeah. But Rachel, to your point again, is I just think Kevin Williamson has such a respect for all the characters in this, specifically, like you said, the women of these movies. And listen, they're so powerful that they are in every single one of these movies. They're not being killed off in the beginning of the next movie. People getting killed off at the beginning of the next movie are the men, like Liev Schreiber, spoiler alert. So yeah, I, I, think there's, I, I definitely believe that that's where he was. And even after this, I mean, he does music of the heart.
2: Oh yeah, that's right.
4: He kind of gets away from horror for a minute.
2: Yeah. I kind of remembered music of the heart happening before Scream, but it was you know a couple of years after, even after Scream. Yeah. Yeah.
4: It was like ninety nine, maybe or something. I remember watching at blockbuster yeah. video, and there was always like eighty five box covers of music of the heart. And we will definitely be talking about video stores shortly because I'm curious to see how many people listening maybe have never even been to a video store, which is <laughs> unbelievable. Huh, That's I just got crazy, chills throughout man. my entire body. <laughs> so listen, Wes Craven. Obviously, we've talked about him a lot on this podcast. Highly influential horror director. He passed away a few years ago. I uh, Actually, I wrote uh, an obit for him on Consequence of Sound when that happened. One of my last things I might have written, actually, at the time.
2: A great director. uh, Very transgressive is what I always liked about his stuff. But not a lot of aesthetic. And that's something uh, that kind of sticks out to Scream for me. Like He seems very point and shoot.
4: He does, but I still feel, even watching this movie, it could have gone so wrong with the wrong director.
2: I think he gets great performances out of people.
4: He does. And, and as we mentioned, Rachel mentioned it too, every act, I've never heard a bad thing about Wes Craven from any of the actors. Like, I think you're, he respects, I mean, he respects them enough to do what they need to do, and then they would respect him enough to listen to that direction. Because as we all know, I mean, actors can be fussy <laughs> people. <laughs> like, I'm the actor, you're the director. But Kevin Williamson, this, this, this is Kevin Williamson's movie at the end of the day, for me at least. I mean, you want to talk about Game Changer, he ch- he changed horror for the next what six, seven, eight years, right? I mean he did And specifically he did he did I mean he wrote I Know What You Did Last Summer, Faculty, Scream Two, Teaching Mrs. Tingle, his fingerprints were all over Halloween H
2: two O. Oh yeah. Scream exploitation for sure. I like that Scream exploitation. That's perfect. Well, that's what I, that's what I was. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's that whole era. Unfortunately with Kevin Williamson though, I think like he kind of peaked like Scream was it. Like that was, he had that one really great horror script in him. And I just don't think he was ever able to recapture it. And I don't know if that's because he was trying too hard to recapture Mm. it or that he should have just left it behind. And, you know, he really seemed, I don't think he wanted to make horror movies as much as he wanted to make teen movies.
4: Well that's, well, that's a little bit of a pivot because, I mean, he went from an iconic horror movie to what is an iconic teen TV drama. Indeed. With Dawson's Creek. And I'm not sure about you, Rachel. Did you ever watch – because he, he also did The Vampire Diaries, which was a huge hit for the CW. Did you ever watch that?
3: I never watched The Vampire Diaries, no. But I feel like it's got the same kind of success for the same reasons. Like he just – he – he's passionate about what he does. He knows what he's writing about, you know, clearly like he's a horror fan. You see that in scream. And he's also just so good at understanding youth and how they talk. Mm-hmm. And like, there's a realism there. And he also like just gives his characters so much depth and agency. And he's just great at writing good characters. And I think that, you know, you see that in all of his films. I I think so. Like I, I, even in like the faculty and, In Dawson's Creek, like you see these really great characters who have a range, which I think, you know, obviously, especially in horror, sometimes people struggle with writing characters like that. And so even if his other films weren't quite as successful, I think that that is kind of a, I don't know, a hallmark of his that you can see that kind of connects all of his films together
2: something he trumps i think a lot of horror writers on particularly from just before this era is that he can actually write friendships which i always say i've said on this podcast several times that i think that that i think that uh people who write horror movies must not have any friends because they just don't know (laughs) how actual friendships work but even with like uh you know kind of the uh interaction between Stu and randy You kind of get the vibe they kind of don't like each other, but you also understand why they would also hang out with each other.
3: Oh, we can dive into that a little bit later. I got a lot to say about those two. I got
4: a lot to say about Stu and Billy, too, later on, I'm sure. (laughs) Let's talk about horror influences. I think what Kevin Williamson does, as opposed to really just about every one of the movies that we've ever covered on this podcast, is as opposed to focusing on the quote-unquote final girl, he focuses on the ensemble. Yeah. And you never feel like the characters in his movies are just there to be killed off, which you can't say about any – even the movies that we love in those other series, it's just not the same. You, you, know, know, they're gonna, actually, you know they're yeah. going to get it. Yeah. These are, these are character-based movies as opposed to killer-based
2: movies. Well, I remember being in the theater in 1996 and, oh, come on, don't kill Dewey because he, he became my favorite character.
5: Yeah, yeah. I would say this is this is probably one of the first franchises where I really felt like that. Like, I genuinely, even if even if they weren't like you know a great character, I genuinely was like, I didn't want anybody to die. Yeah. You know, because like also before, and this is before you know you knew it was going to spawn sequels. But I and we'll get to a, a part later on with a couple characters where I was genuinely like, I don't know. Who's the killer, but I don't want either of you to be the killer. And I don't want either of you to die in this movie. Like it was just very conflicted. Yeah. But, uh, I, I, I absolutely agree. I think it was absolutely more focused on the ensemble and building character than it is about the killer. And I, that's huge. We always say that like you can make me care about the characters in a horror movie, that's huge. You gotta do that. You have to have that setup because then when you start killing people, it matters, and they're not just like fodder for like cool deaths. Which don't get me wrong, I love cool deaths too. Yeah, but, don't get me wrong. You uh, know, you have
2: gotta have to the, the cool deaths work better <laughs> when you like the character. Exactly. It's more yeah, impactful, absolutely.
4: especially in oh God stream Scream too. Especially, good lord, there's a death in that movie. You're kind of just like, I can't believe this is actually happening.
3: I did hear. So Eli Roth, you know. I'm going to leave that alone. But anyways, Eli Roth was saying that uh, he thinks that Kevin Williamson ha- really has like a John Hughes quality to him. And I oh, sure. had never really thought about it that way. And I was like, God damn it, Eli Roth. You're totally right.
4: Look, I've been very vocal um, on the written page and, and, and voice about Eli Roth, but he knows his horror.
3: Yeah, and you know, it, I'll it, give
4: it, them that 100%. It's yeah. Right.
3: It's the ensemble cast just like you what you were saying and it's the same thing that makes like John Hughes films, you know, on paper anyways, like so endearing in those characters and the way that they work together. I mean, that's I mean the you know the Brat Pack, that's what it is. Like and it's the same thing you see here and it's it's really cool to see that like translate into horror for sure.
4: It's incredibly it's incredible to think about that in 2021 somehow Stream is less problematic than Pretty in Pink, but... Seriously,
3: for <laughs> real. Are. I was like, actually, we like surprised when i rewatched it because it had been a few years and like i haven't actually like sat down and watched it kind of critically i've seen it like at you know public screenings or whatever when it's like fun and you're just you know also drinking and talking or whatever but like actually watching it critically i was like wow this is actually this holds up pretty well other than the fact that they say cellular every like five minutes like (laughs) explain this
4: all (laughs) the phone technology is interesting
3: the cellular phone (laughs) but like other than that it's like well this actually does hold up really well there's you know some pretty and in some ways, I think it actually like becomes scarier, and we can talk about that later. But it is less problematic than Pretty in Pink.
4: <laughs> <laughs> and Pink. Bre- and Breakfast Club, for that matter. Yeah. Something else about the script I love a lot is it kind of also pays tribute to the audiences who are always frustrated by the way certain characters on the screen act. You know, especially in Halloween, whenever Lori drops the knife and, and people are just like, oh, that's it. I can't believe this is happening. What I love about this movie specifically is rewatching it is the scene where Sydney's on the phone with the killer and says so she doesn't like horror movies because the, the girl always runs up the stairs when she should run out of the house. It's insulting. And then, of course, when she's put in that real life scenario one minute later, what does she do? She runs up the stairs. So, is this a good way of saying, like, look? Well, well yeah, to her credit, it's she fun. does try to go down,
5: but, you know, he's the ghost but, but, she she's there. Up,
4: <laughs> but she ends up going up those stairs. Uh, I love that little reference there little note here, I couldn't really find a place, though. I mean, we, it's, it, this movie's not problematic, but it is severely dated. There's a scene in the police station, and if you look closely on Dewey's desk, he has a Dunkin' Donuts bag on his desk. Now, of course, now <laughs> it's only called Dunkin'.
5: Damn it, I made that same note, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was waiting to
4: <laughs> jump
5: in there with that.
4: I think uh, whoever's got the rights now, if it's Dimension Films or okay. if Paramount has some type of control, I think they're going to go back and put the walkie-talkie over that Dunkin' <laughs> Donuts bag. Here's something that we have to talk about, which in 1996, I never thought would be such a a, a point. But when you think about most movies that talk about movies and they take place such a places like a movie theater, like something like Demons, right? Which takes place in a movie theater. Granted, in the state of the world right now, we're not all going to movie theaters, but we all go to the movie theaters, right? It's just so wild. And, And the total recall I got from seeing Randy working at that video store was so strange because i remember like you know on a friday night if you went too late and those video stores were packed it's just it's hard to explain <laughs> to the kids of today like on tuesdays like, the rush <laughs> to get that movie or, or they're gonna be gone for like you, you can't just days. watch
2: whatever you fuck you want whatever the fuck you want exactly
4: yeah i, mean, I have was, a hard
2: time i have a hard time realizing that when i'm you know renting something off amazon you know for Three bucks, like man, I would have had to get off my my ass and go. Oh, and it might, my video store might not carry this movie.
4: Sure, I I just remember there would be times where it was kind of the equivalent of just doom scrolling through Netflix for like an hour and not and just saying, oh look, there's a thousand movies I should be watching, and then just saying forget it and going to bed. I would go to Blockbuster. And like walk around for an
2: hour. Oh, I'm sure the, the the local mom and pop stores my neighbor it was popcorn oh and village. God. I'm sure the people that worked there hated us because we just hung out there and looked at yeah. the boxes. And then, and then we went home just didn't get and never rent, rarely rented anything.
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say so many times we'd go and be like, uh, all right. I remember that that great story. That's where you and I'll your friends went to Blockbuster. Yeah,
4: staying over with friends one night, <laughs> and we told his mom, "Okay, we're gonna go to Blockbuster and, and get a movie." we were gone for like over an hour at this blockbuster and we didn't get anything. We just could not decide on the movie to watch. We were not in the mood to watch anything. So we got back without a movie and his mother seriously believed that we were up to no good. (laughs) And I had to go home. (laughs) I'm like, I don't know why that you were at
5: blockbuster for an hour
4: thought we were going off to do some drugs for 90 minutes and come back. But looking back, she probably did just think that. She probably thought we were doing that.
2: We used to get hollered at by the clerks because we'd go digging the garbage, looking for posters and uh, oh, yeah. the cardboard standees and stuff. And I just never understood why they couldn't figure it. They could sell that shit to us for $5 instead of... It's like of... the whole, what is it, Dunkin' yeah.
4: Donuts or ever throwing all their donuts and yeah. like giving them away. Not
5: to, not to detract too much, but... You did say that this film had, was problem, like, the production was problematic, and I know that we talked about Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson, but, like, where where did that enter in? Because I don't, I don't personally remember there being problems with it being made. Maybe I just oh, didn't yeah, do like, the I, research I mentioned it back all. in the day. It
4: was just the wine scenes were really critical of Wes Craven. They didn't like the mask, didn't like the dailies, Change the title.
5: Oh, okay, okay. The I I, thought, I didn't know if there was another times, thing. Okay, okay, that's
2: cool. Fired- I fired... Or they fired yeah. the original cinematographer. Correct. Like, gotcha. with like a couple of weeks left of, of shooting. Uh, and who is. Uh, there are some good, good notes on that cinematographer. He. That oh, he bring up.
4: It was. I think that they were going to fire the entire crew. That, that cinematographer.
2: Yeah. But
4: instead, they just fired him or something like that.
2: Uh, yeah, it was. But it's it, wild it was a because the cinema, original cinematographer is Mark Irwin, and he had shot. Uh, scanners, The Brood, The Fly, The Blob, Fright Night Part 2, which I know mm. is a favorite of yours. The Fright Night Part 2. Dustin, mm. and a 1981 slasher night school, so he knew his way around, so I don't Tools. know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He also did I Come in Peace. You ever seen that one? with Dolph Lundgren uh, in Yeah.
5: Yeah,
2: yeah oh, that's a great Archangel. one.
3: I was going to say, problematic. My husband off screen just reminded me that uh, Drew Barrymore, she dropped out. That she... And
2: yeah, she wanted to be Sydney.
3: Yeah, well, yeah, she was cast as Sydney, and then decided to drop out, which was like a huge panic mode for everybody because she was like the big name at the time and attached to it.
4: That's right. Yeah. But
3: Sorry. then, it, and then it became her idea to do the the cold open to be that character, and that's what led to Nev Campbell. And they still like had her on the poster and top billing, you know, which obviously that cold open ended up making scream what it is. But of initially, like. Wes Craven was thought about dropping out at that point and it was kind of a, they didn't know what they were going to do with it. So I think that was kind of a, you know, a really early, like, oh shit moment for the whole production for
4: sure.
5: And that really thrust her back into the spotlight too though, right? Wasn't, or was she already having her day? We'll talk
4: about her in the, in the character section, but um, yes, (laughs) I'll put it bluntly. Yeah. What's funny you think about this movie, like with everything wrong that happened pre-production production production, and even some post-production stuff. Like, the worst-case scenario of this is Cursed, which was also Miramax, which was also Kevin Williamson, which was also West Craven, so you just never know. I feel like this is one of the greatest examples yeah. of production hell that actually worked out, like this and Fury Road, <laughs> like the two
2: production hells that... Worked out better than they could have ever expected, I think. Oh, absolutely.
4: Especially at this point, it wasn't like they yeah. were capitalizing on something, you know? Same with Fury Road. They weren't, that wasn't capitalizing on a 30-year-old franchise at that point, so...
5: I feel like, too, it's credit, like, one of, the, one of the only movies that actually takes place in California. <laughs> and it's, you know, like, it owns it. You know what I mean? Like, it, all these other horror movies always filmed well, in California. Hold on now, but Matt,
4: That was another thing is that the Weinstein did not, they, they wanted to save, like, a million bucks and film in Vancouver
2: or something like that.
4: Oh, really? Yeah.
2: But Wes Craven said he wanted this to be, to look like an American movie.
4: Like an all-American movie. Yeah, that's what he said. Yeah. Like the, your, your typical, everybody's... Basically like a homage to the early 80s horror movies. So, yeah, the movie had a budget ultimately of $15 million, made $173 million. And then when you hear that, the Weinsteins were saying, "Uh, Mr. Craven, you can do whatever the hell you want. Let's make another movie in the next 11 months, (laughs) which is what they did. They made another movie. A year later, and we'll talk about Scream Two, obviously. In a it's few wild
2: how fast they got the first Scream out, too. When you look at it, they shot from like April to June, and then it was in theaters by December. That seems wow. fast for anything.
4: Well, I remember there's a couple of Friday the 13th movies I feel had that crazy turnaround, but those didn't usually work out as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, the turnaround time for Friday the 13th, part five, wasn't as great as part four.
2: We well, had Mc- Dominic Brasco working on it. He, uh, he kept that production moving. He did. He kept God, Danny, He kept, he kept Danny. Soul. Line. All right,
4: well, we're going to move on to another section here. And this is a special section created for this season. And it's a section called, What Are the Rules?
1: What are the rules? What are the rules? What are the rules? What are the rules?
4: So each of the screen movies, somebody lists off rules. Now, usually they're, they're brand new rules, each movie, or they're kind of takes on the rules. So I've got three rules that Randy gives. If anybody wants to list off what they've got, feel free, and I'll jump in if, 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 we, if, if we missed anything or if there were additional ones. Anybody have anybody have a list here?
5: Well, I guess we could just name the three Randy and then go from there because there is another one that Ghostface
4: mentions. Ah, okay. Well, let's go with the Randy ones then. I've got You Can Never Have Sex. No one. sex. No. <laughs> you want to survive? Hey, saved Randy. <laughs> you can never drink or do drugs. Never. Never. And never ever under any circumstances say, "I'll be right back."
3: I'll be right back.
4: Great, great <laughs> bit. Which I noticed, I forgot. Stu does that bit twice in the movie. <laughs> yeah. So he, 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 the rule of three, you could have done that one more time. <laughs> We'd probably been like, oh, "That's pretty, funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, still so pretty funny." Right after um, he had so, his head
2: crushed by the TV.
4: Oh God. I can't wait to talk about Sydney's body count in these movies later on. <laughs> okay, so so Mac, you're mentioning there's another rule that Randy does not mention.
5: Well, Ghostface says to Sydney when there's a a knock at the door, she says, says, "Who's there?" Uh, if he says, "Never say who's there. You might as well come out and investigate a strange noise or something." You know, like I like how they're they're already it's already very clear. You know that there's there's like ten million things you shouldn't do that are things that people always do in horror films.
4: Yeah, that we learned. In horror movies, that the killer yeah, has learned yeah. in horror movies too. So I'm trying to think about the cast. So I, I wonder. You know, I don't want to presume. Are we, are we led to believe that in addition to Randy, is it possible that Dewey also had never had sex at this point?
2: It's possible to believe that, indeed. I think so. Possible. Oh, Twenty five, so sure. living at home. Yeah. Where's he going to bang in Woodsboro? Exactly. I didn't see any motels around. Yeah, other wait. That,
4: with that
3: mustache, yeah. No.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Hey, it worked. It worked on Cordy Cox eventually.
1: Yeah, I guess. So. <laughs>
5: Impressive. Man, it's not, it's, honestly, though, Woodsboro sounds like people were banging left and right. I mean, Sydney's <laughs> mom and all that stuff. Like it was like a, oh It was my God, like a Sydney's mom. God a bless her. Melrose I mean, Place. Like
4: <laughs> the, we'll get into this later too. The, the, the behavior of the of the teenagers of this city or this town is wild. Um, the reaction to certain things The worst It's
2: just The it's worst like They're the worst like fucking people
4: Sociopaths we'll, we'll dive into that In the future <laughs> section So Alright so those are the rules folks Now We're gonna move on to our next section And we're gonna discuss The score And some songs From the movie In a section that we call I think I love you Hey I think I Of course, I think I Love You is a reference to Scream 2, a song that uh, Jerry O'Connell's character sings. So that's the... uh, In case you're all shocked at my singing voice, it was for a very good reason. So the person who did the score for this movie is Marco Beltrami. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it's because he has worked on 98 movies over the last 27 years. He's been nominated for a couple Oscars for 310 to Yuma and The Hurt Locker, and... If Kevin Williamson had an influence on horror scores over the next 5-6 years after Scream, then Marco Beltrami also had a huge influence on horror scores over the next 6 years, especially H2O, especially
2: H2O. Yeah, he, featuring uh, Steve Miner. He also that's did right. the score for 2006's Omen remake, which we discussed on our Oh, that's right. our Patreon episode.
4: He's worked with Wes Craven, he worked he did work with Wes Craven a lot over the years, including the Scream movies else that cursed if you i mean this this person's got an incredible wikipedia page i will
2: give them that you you guys have a favorite bit of score from scream that's what anything I want to that talk stands about. out for you i think yeah. here's the
4: thing that, that, that separates this from the other franchises this I, I think the score is solid throughout it's hard for me to pinpoint a specific like theme that's not song related you know right I mean?
3: Well, number also, I just really quickly want, I mean, this was his first feature, like, film score. Mm. So I think that that's pretty impressive just off the bat. I really like the way he handles, like, Sydney's theme. And she has a lot of vocals, you know, kind Is of surrounding like the,
2: her. Yeah, like the kind of, ooh.
3: Yeah, like the like vocal. The, yeah.
2: The only one that ended up on the soundtrack.
3: Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. On Yeah, like on the release. And yeah. I think that's just really an interesting way to say that like she's you know she's carrying around this this trauma that she's got and it's kind of just a way to sort of you know pay tribute to that and give her her own special sound which she you know definitely deserves. I do think it's interesting that as influenced as the film is by so many other horror films that there's not a more iconic score that there's not a more like definitive sound to scream. Because I think it would take somebody who like really knows the film. Like if you just put on the screen music and said, what movie is this from?
2: Yeah, it would exactly. it
3: would have to take somebody who really knows their film music to be like, oh, that's Scream. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. There's but no kick,
2: kick, kick, ma, ma, ma. There's yeah, no that yeah. Piano Especially theme from Elm Slasher, Street.
3: Sure, like there's not really those kind of defining sounds that slashers kind of be, have become known for. You know, there's no you know Carpenter sound. There's there's little stings and stuff, but they're all yeah. like tributes to other sort of films.
5: So. Yeah, and, and and I was gonna say like, uh, well, for me, something that that I always, I don't think I ever, I thought maybe it was a song or something, but I never contributed to the score. But when, when, uh, Sydney, when when she's on the campus, I think for the first time, and that the score that comes in there with like the choir singing over, like, that's very like, you know, it's like this big thing, you know, because obviously, you know, (laughs) those two people just died the night before, but that score, that always uh, resonates with me, that, that piece of music and I feel like that is something that also carries over, I think at least into the next f- film. But yeah, I, I was surprised because we, like you guys were saying, I didn't really remember the score off offhand. There isn't like a, like you were saying, there isn't a, a, a theme that really sticks out, but listening to it and really focusing on it for this episode, I was like, this is actually really good.
2: It's I I don't think I give too. Michael
5: Bartrami very much credit. <laughs> I feel like it's some, some other films that he's done. have kind of just been like, yeah, this is like not like who cares, but it, this is where the score really serves the movie instead of the other way around. And mm-hmm. I think also that this was kind of, and we're going to talk about it a lot. This is also that era where like soundtracks were big so, mm-hmm. like there are songs that are played in this movie like obviously like red right hand stuff like that like that is where the main focus is and then obviously over the next six years we got yeah everybody always wanted to be on the soundtrack to whatever horror movie is coming out but yeah I, I i ended up really digging the score i thought it was really really solid
3: it's beautiful like it really yeah. is and i mean you definitely do see like if you're looking at it deeper like the influences from the or the other horror films like it definitely has like you know, a little bit of an omen feel, or a little bit of Rosemary's Baby, or you know, Psycho, and that kind of stuff. So, I I think it's really interesting, and just further supports the whole, you know, premise of the film, the big picture idea, and like all those influences. So, yeah, I, I it's it really is beautiful for sure.
2: There is a piece of music right when uh, when uh, the Beckers get home and they're looking for Casey. Oh, yeah, mm. and yeah. like Oof. I think re- like watching it now critically, uh, you know, how many years twenty. 25 years. 25 years later. Like that piece of music is so emotional and it adds weight to the situation, but it also really makes scream feel like an A-list picture. I think like right off the bat.
5: Yeah. This is not
2: your, this is not your typical uh, late era, Friday the 13th late era, Halloween that you're in for something different. And I, I don't know if maybe I, like I definitely didn't notice that when I saw it when I was 16 years old, like in my head, but like, I think, Maybe there's something intangible that you feel inside when you hear that score, that this is different than those other movies.
4: Well, I think the score, Rachel, I think you said it, and I think you also alluded to it, Mike Vanderbilt, is that it is a it is a big score. Because, granted, this is a horror movie, but there's a lot of action. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's some scenes where you do see Ghostface stalking people. But for the most part, it is propelled by the action. And, and the music is definitely syncing up extremely well throughout the entire movie. Everything's big. Randy's big. Stu is big. Billy's ultimately big. You know, Gail works for a tabloid. You know, that's as a big personality as well. There's so, like nothing really subdued. So I actually like how the music is so elevated and so bombastic. It works in its favor. And in, 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 in other horror movies, maybe it maybe wouldn't but, work.
2: Bombastic. That's what this is.
4: Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah.
3: The sound design too is like. Just incredible too, and it really plays into the score and the sound design work really well together. I think in this, especially later when you get like the bleed over from the Halloween movie that's playing in those final talk about.
5: Like it actually
3: becomes the score, which just like oh, it's just like makes me so happy in such a nerdy way that you know that they're using it literally to support the film while it's also playing in the background. It's great. Well, I
4: also noticed. Yeah, because like you said, like the entire climax is scored by Halloween, which is yeah, brilliant. Is at the beginning, it's really soft music, but when Ghostface is asking Casey who the killer is in Halloween, you can kind of hear the Halloween piano theme in the background, like a new a new take oh, on really? it. I thought that was really yeah, I listened really carefully. I was like, oh, it's really quiet. You're not really focusing on the music at that point. You're more worried about right, right. Casey. <laughs> a couple other music beats, Rachel. I also like what you said about you know if you play certain scores. You have to be a, a diehard to know that it's Marco Beltrami from Scream. But I bet if you played Nick Cave's Red Right Hand, yeah. I guarantee most people would say, oh, that's from Scream. They wouldn't even assume. They wouldn't necessarily know it's Nick Cave. They wouldn't even know that what album that came out of. You know, that that is the song that defines the movies.
5: And this is how you know how old someone is, is because when you ask them that question, whether they say Scream or Peaky Blinders. Yes, that's
3: Mac. <laughs> it it oh, is boy. used. Oh, it boy. is
5: used at not. I mean, it is literally not only just the theme of the of the show, but they they work it into the show so much. It becomes like the theme of the show, and I was I never thought I would get so tired of that song. Um, so <laughs> it, it, I, I, you know, I like Peaky Blinders, but it's a totally totally different thing, yeah. but watching Scream and then hearing it used in Scream it really gave me that nostalgic fact that I went right back there and I, I do love though j- just talking about the, it's the, also the editing in this film is like perfect like we were saying with the Halloween theme playing you know and and just how that's scoring I mean I mean, down to you know Dewey opening the door right when you hear one of the stings from Halloween but you also get that a little bit throughout the movie just with the way the music's used like with Red Right Hand plays when they show up at the police station and the bell tolls like right when Dewey shuts the door to the, to the, mm. to the sheriff car and it's just like there's so much attention to detail like that and I love that I think because music makes a movie for me so when when they're, when they're on that kind of level for a horror film for a slasher you know I'm like oh yes like this is just spot on yeah
4: well and I know Vanderbilt Vanderbilt made me very happy <laughs> yesterday because he said he had like two pages of notes on the soundtrack oh. so I was thrilled and I was like that, that's oh, one thing I don't have to necessarily worry about but there's something else I noticed once again a little subtle thing If you if you haven't watched it in a while um, at the very beginning, when Billy is talking to Sydney mm-hmm. and trying to convince him to sleep. Uh, Rachel knows what I'm talking I know, about.
3: I know where you're going. <laughs> um,
4: when Billy is trying to convince Sydney to sleep with him, there is an acoustic cover of Don't Fear the Reaper. I love that's a great little yeah. – little, uh, it's not the original. It's like an acoustic version, so it's not – I thought that was a nice little foreshadowing
2: there. Let's talk about that cover because that cover was also used in Smallville. Ah, mm-hmm. and a mm-hmm. series which I'm sure we're going to get to on the Halloweenies podcast, The Howling Reborn.
4: That's crazy. I forgot <laughs> that that was an actual.
2: <laughs> and of course, you know, it was originally done by Blue Oyster Cult, and uh, of the B-side was Tattoo Vampire, which is a pretty cool, too. One of
4: my favorites. Yeah. Tattoo Vampire, of course, from Vampire Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they went the B-side first, then they went A-side.
2: But this is, a, this is a cool soundtrack, and it's interesting, I think, looking at this soundtrack versus looking at... Scream Two, like after this movie had become a hit, because then you have Dave Matthews Band, which at that point were one of the, they were one of the biggest bands in the world there. But the soundtrack was uh, released by a label, TVT Records. Now, TVT has an interesting history. That sounds extremely familiar to me. Why is well because they they signed Gated by Voices. They did that's uh, why do, they, they do did the did mm-hmm. thrills, do the uh, collapse. Yeah, they okay, did the Buffy the Vampire Slayer soundtrack. They were big in the nineties, but they started in seventy eight they launched from Steve Gottlieb's apartment with a uh, record called Television's greatest hits. Now, it's not a collection not the band Television. It's not it's not the tele- band Television. It's not uh Richard Hell. It's uh Oh, I
5: know what you're talking about though. I can clearly see that in my head. You home. know
2: that cover. It was yeah. just a collection. It's like an animated yeah. like in, a, in like a tan No, it was a, room. like an it was old the blue vintage... background yes. on the
5: Yeah, it's the old vintage TV, uh, yeah.
2: So they, it was just vintage TV th- songs. Now, TVT also signed Nine Inch Nails in 1988. So that's one of their big claim to fame. And they had a big uh, prominent in industrial music because they purchased industrial label Wax Tracks in 1992. Hmm. So the soundtrack does feature a couple cool Chicago connections. So uh, do you want to just run through the soundtrack real Let's fast? Let's run through
4: the soundtrack. And if we remember specific moments that they pop, obviously we've we already talked about Red Right Hand. Yeah, which nobody one.
2: ever mentions that it was uh, featured in the X-Files episode Ascension. Nobody ever... Peaky Blinders, <laughs> Scream. Hellboy. Hellboy, X-Files, 1994, Ascension.
4: Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Okay, go ahead.
2: So you got uh, up front, you got Youth of America by Bird Brain.
4: Now that is played... Is that right when they get to the high school? A
2: certain, no, when get, it's when, they when they're pulling up to the, the, party? the party. Which is the one party, of my. The
4: party. I knew there was some montage going on.
2: Another yeah. great moment in this film. I think a real cool rock and roll moment where you have the kids' car pulling up and then you kind of get this because of the way the song builds, like that something really big is happening. And then Gail Weathers' van pulls up. Because and you know it gives you a sense of time and place. Like she's stalking, she's after him. She's keeping an eye on things, and then he throw the bag of uh, ruffles out the door.
4: Yeah, <laughs> it's a nice little touch. Yeah, Kenny always eating.
2: But uh, they were the Brad Pitt uh, of this movie. Yeah, Bird Brain was just a band uh, out of Boston. that's signed to TVT, and there's a lot of TVT bands just on the soundtrack. And, and we've talked about soundtracks being big in the '90s, and a big thing was just for whatever label it was on to try and squeeze their bands on there, right? It's too bad that they
4: they missed um, using uh, Chasing Heather Crazy, which would have been great. But that was a couple years
2: after this. Uh, then we have Whisper by Catherine, who were a Chicago band. And they just uh, I imagine they were playing around Wicker Park as the same time as Material Issue and the Smashing Pumpkins and Liz Fair, because they reunited in 2011 to play two songs at the Riv for a Pumpkins reunion show. Did either any of you guys go to that one?
4: I did not. Mike Ruffman, I believe, was at that show. Yeah. Oh, no, he might have gone to the Aragon show. I can't remember. But
2: yeah. Then we had Red Right Hand, Don't Fear the Reaper by Gus Black, as we uh, discussed. But then we have, now this is uh, this one I'm sure you guys are going to dig. Uh, Artificial World by Julie Cruz with the flow. Do we know Julie Cruz?
4: Oh, yeah. Twin Peaks? Yeah. The great Julie Cruz. And uh, I, I have
5: per- a hard time pinpointing these other songs and when they take place in the movie, though, I will say. Like, if you played them, maybe maybe a key a yeah. bit. I really can't. It's a it's very much background noise for oh, a lot of the, You know, a lot of these songs because yeah. I I can't even pretend to remember some of these. No, yet.
2: no, no, no. But um, now, you know, one of my favorite bits of trivia about Julie Cruz that she uh she performed "Falling" the vocal version of mm-hmm. the Twin Peaks theme on SNL because Shane. I o- never saw that. I can't find it online because Sinead O'Connor was supposed to perform. But she was boycotting the show not because of the Pope picture, because Andrew Dice Clay was the host.
4: Oh, Sinead O'Connor and Nora Dunn. I yeah, that they Nora Dunn was
2: the big holdout her. on that one, yeah.
4: Fun fact, nobody from SNL boycotted when Trump was on. Yeah. But, but we all worship SNL and their takedown of, of that guy.
2: You're welcome. Um, side dumb bar, my,
4: my commentary on SNL sellouts.
2: Dumbass Alec Baldwin holding up that you're welcome sign. Oh, my God. Uh, Then we have Better Than Me by Sister Machine Gun, another Chicago band, another Wax Tracks band. Uh, I did a pretty cool interview with Julie Nash, who owned Wax Tracks for a goth fanzine, like an actual physical magazine that I'll dig up.
4: Well, Mike, there's also a song on there that I felt like it belonged to, like, Mr. and Mrs. Prescott. Like a seven-minute song. You know what I'm talking about? Wait a minute. It's on the soundtrack. Which keep, uh, keep going. You keep going. I'll all find right, the all right,
2: cuz Now, <laughs> we got Birds Fly, Whispered to a Scream by Soho, which of course plays over the end credits.
4: Now, that was a cover of a song, I believe. Yeah,
2: it was covered by an Icicle Works tune. And Icicle Works, it was written by Ian McNabb, but Icicle Works only had two good songs. They had several albums with the only two good songs. And the other song they did was uh, Understanding Jane, which is a great tune. And to bring it back around, that was featured on the soundtrack to Tommy McLaughlin's Date with an Angel.
4: Oh, that does come back. All right, there you go.
2: And Soho had a big hit. Do you guys remember the song, Hippie Chick, that uh, sampled uh, How Soon Is Now by the Smiths? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, this was
4: the, yeah, okay.
2: Uh, are we go, uh, now we're going to move along to, uh, this Is this was funny because uh, First Cool Hive by Moby. Like,
4: which, which closes the movie. Yeah, yeah. Is, is right. this the first? No, this is not the, the first instance of Moby I remember in a movie is The End of Heat. It was a year before this.
2: Okay. I really didn't know who Moby was until that play record came out.
4: Well, then that that, that every single song was on something. I mean, that was a
2: massive. Yeah. Hit. And we got, bitter, we got Bitter Pill by the Connells. They were kind of a North Carolina jangle pop band like R.E.M. A band who I always thought I should get into, but just never really the dug bitter, all that much. What are they called again? Uh, the Connells.
4: The Connells, okay. There you
2: go. And then uh, closing out the soundtrack, other than the piece of score, is School's Out by Alice Cooper. Oh,
4: ah, from Dave's Confused. Yeah. yeah. Alice Cooper, of course, did the song on Jason Lives, directed by Tom McLaughlin.
2: Yeah, oh, yeah. The And he was in Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. So he, he, Alice he, Cooper. I was trying to find a Halloween connection for Alice Cooper.
4: Uh, he dresses like it's Halloween. There you every go. Concert. Fair,
2: fair. Oh, but God. it's now the Alice Cooper versions in the Alice Cooper versions in the movie. But the version yes. of the soundtrack is different. And it's by the last of the hard men. Now, do you guys know who's in the last of the hard men? It's, it's an interesting group. It's uh, Jimmy Chamberlain from the Pumpkins.
4: Pumpkins, Chicago.
2: Kelly Deal from the Breeders. Wow. Uh, Jimmy Fleming from the Frogs and On Vocals is sebastian bach you know
4: (laughs) i'm not surprised what can i say sebastian bach of course of gilmore girls fame um he is great he was great on gilmore girls that's not that's actually not insult he was really good on the show uh we'll talk about gilmore girls obviously in a few seasons from now for some reason yeah cool you know know, we will because lauren graham is in scream 4 we will be talking about gilmore girls in a couple of months
2: can't wait Okay. That's it. That, that, that's, uh, that's every song in the soundtrack.
4: We covered every song. We covered the score. We covered other people's scores in, 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 uh, in this movie. But I'll tell you, folks, it's time to talk about the sick fucks.
1: It's a fun game, Sydney. See, we ask you a question, and if you get it wrong, you die. You get it right? You die. You're crazy, both of you.
4: Okay, now... Sick fucks is not what you think it is. Isn't, this isn't like some bro talking about a night he had the other night. I'm talking about <laughs> the, 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 the sick. Let's all recover from that joke. The sick fucks we're talking about are <laughs> who plays. Rachel, let's give you a. I, plays, I didn't
3: think about it that way. So. <laughs>
4: I literally just came up with that at the top of my head. These are the people who played the killers in this movie. So let's actually start off with who does Ghostface's voice is Roger L. Jackson, of course, my hilarious... I played on the name hilariously at the top of this episode. Fun fact, he was actually just supposed to be a placeholder, and they were going to use somebody else. But they ended up liking his voice so much that they didn't do it. I think that was obviously the correct decision.
5: What Do you know whose voice they were trying to go for? Oh, I don't know. I what think they that
2: were they were thinking? going to just plan it oh, later
4: they... on, kind of like... Uh,
2: Interesting. They were probably going to have the actors just do it through a vocoder, I would imagine, if they didn't yeah, keep whoever... the
4: ultimately would have done it would have just come in post-production like they've done that before i remember joel schumacher's photo booth it was it was keifer sutherland who was on the other line but yes. originally it was actually somebody else another well-known actor i think too but i can't recall who it was that's
2: a larry cohen script
4: oh larry cohen the, the, is it the late larry the cohen, late larry cohen. There's, there's a lawrence d cohen there's a larry cohen yeah. there's a lot of cohen's out there. there's a
2: rob cohen there's a rob cohen yeah.
4: <laughs> jason <laughs> takes manhattan sam <laughs> roger l jackson as integral a part of the Scream franchise as any of the three leads, obviously. I can't imagine, I can't imagine a Scream movie without that voice. Indeed. That's, that would almost be a yeah, deal-breaker, you know?
5: It's kind of like the Robert England Freddy thing. Like, you, you really have to have that voice. It doesn't matter who the killer <laughs> ends up being, but like, you got to have that you voice. you got to have yeah. that
4: voice and somebody running around in that costume. Here's something else that definitely dates me, maybe. Maybe Vanderbilt 2, maybe even you, Mac. But they ended up using costume that was actually already on the shelves i love it and they had to go through the rights to get it this is more (laughs) production hell stuff they had to go through the rights to get it they made like a knockoff version but craven didn't like it so they i think you can see a couple shots in in the movie yeah you you can can see
2: it in two shots yeah
4: yeah it's i think when casey's getting killed and there's another scene you're talking about the grandfather time costume the the father death the father death father death
5: father death I remember seeing. Why why
4: was I.? Why did I say
5: grandfather time? I knew father was in it.
4: (laughs) I
2: (laughs) remember.
5: Grandfather time. When I Uh. I saw this,
2: I I was dead set that first time sitting in the theater that I was going to figure out who the killer was. And I remember seeing the Father Time costume, like the name I go. Oh, no,
4: damn it. It's Father
2: Death. <laughs> <or> father <laughs> no, it's Grandfather
4: Time now. Uh, grandfather
2: oh, Time. Yeah, yeah, you guys now. It. I saw the We're Grandfather Time the name it. on it, and I knew that it was Sydney's grandfather immediately. Like, I was 100% oh, certain. God. This, is,
4: this is a Mandela effect. It's the Grandfather Time effect. Like, we can't find Sydney's father, but
5: we know his grandfather's uh, missing, too.
4: <laughs> oh, I like it. His grandfather's missing, which makes it Sydney's great-grandfather, uh, which is even more of a nightmare. Here's oh, what I wow. want to say though. When when I think it's Dewey who holds up the, the costume and says Father Death, my friends and I referred to the killer as Father Death in like the weeks after. Really? And no, yeah, oh yeah, because it's kinda like when Hellraiser came out and Pinhead was just listed as lead cinebite. Nobody called him Pinhead in the novella, nobody called him Pinhead right when the movie came out. It just kinda became the thing. Now obviously Tatum does sarcastically call him Mr. Ghostface in the garage before she's about to get killed. Right. But yeah, we were like that's we kept calling him father death. We did not call him Ghostface at all <laughs> no, for a while. I,
2: I don't know when I I don't think I noticed that it was he was called Ghostface. I don't even know if I by the time Scream two or sky time scream three came out, I don't know if I ever referred to him. Well I think I feel like
4: by that point right. it's just like people were calling him Calling them, I guess, as we discover Scream 2, is like the killer. The killer or yeah, – like, yeah. I'm a Like father death. That's <laughs> what we call them, <laughs> Grandfather time. I will, Grandfather say, time. <laughs> I, I will say – Grandfather time.
2: I will say I think one of the – one of the things I think I knew in the theater in 96 was how – That costume is instantly iconic and it's because it's off the shelf i think is why Mm -hmm. it works because too many times in you know the late era run of slasher film from the 80s they would be trying so hard to create something as iconic as michael myers or the hockey mask and those were all just happy accidents and this kind of was too
4: well it made it even more realistic because we could pick up that costume if we want to anytime yeah and i think that fed into the a blurred reality between their world and our world and their pop culture and our And pop it
2: goes culture. back to Halloween. Like he just broke into a hardware store. They probably they yeah. didn't think about that, Stu and Billy. They went, they said, All right, this one looks fine. There's two of them here.
4: Yeah, <laughs> the last two on the yeah. right, probably. Well, let's talk about Billy Loomis, played by Skeet Ulrich. So I'm, this is going to be an interesting series because I feel like we can kind of go through and give our feelings on. Well, obviously, we figure out it's Billy at the end, but. <laughs> Like, how sure were you throughout that it was, so Rachel?
3: I wasn't sure at all.
4: When did you start to suspect Billy? Was there ever a point?
3: Well, I mean, that's what's so great about this film, I think, is like how well it navigates that mystery element. And, you know, kind of subtly leaves you these red herring things. But what I do love is like the whole time you just have to listen to Randy. Like Randy's it's telling true. you like everything you need to know. Like he's right the whole time. <laughs> I think I always suspected Billy. The stew thing was more of a twist, to be honest. Mm. Like I didn't, I didn't think that there would be two.
4: Well, that's the thing, right? Is that horror move? That's the great subversion. Because yeah. horror movies have trained us that there is just going to be well, I'm sure there's other examples. Right? Don't get, listen, folks. Don't <laughs> don't at me. I, I know I'm forgetting hey, some major. movies. I tried, to,
2: I tried to remember one that had two killers pre-scream, and I, I nothing came to mind. But I'm
4: we're conditioned to think I, that there's just one. So once th- I agree. Like so, we're we're just looking at one person. We're not even thinking about there being more than one. Obviously, when the the phone is revealed, it's almost at the point where you think it, it would be too obvious if he was the killer. Oh yeah. And because I felt it was too obvious, that made it. Much more shocking when it was the killer, right. you know, or one of the killers, I should say.
2: I uh, yeah. remember talking to him, the girl who cut my hair back in 96, 97, and I remember her saying, I knew it was him. He looked skeezy from the get-go. And, and then and then she says,
4: so do you want the Billy Loomis haircut? Yeah. <laughs>
2: the, it, the Billy Loomis haircut is like the official haircut of every sure. guy, every every, uh, every jag-off jock who started listening to Alternative Rock. In the 90s, but didn't understand anything that Kirk Cobain stood for.
4: Kirk Cobain that, was, yes, That is up like a 90s yeah.
2: fucking cool guy bully haircut if I've ever seen one.
4: Well, he was obviously cast because of his, he looked a lot like Johnny Depp, which was unquestionably he looks like Johnny Depp. And I was obviously paying homage to, to Elm Street. But Mac, were you going to say something?
5: Yeah, I was just going to say, like, I, I genuinely didn't know who it was uh, pretty much up till the end because. Like you said, when they make it obvious, like that sequence when they're talking to Randy at the video store and they gang up on him, and you literally have the two killers ganging up on Randy, and they both seem a little unhinged in that. Even even Matthew Lewis, even Stu, you're kinda like, Why are, it really does feel weird, but I think because it's so in your face, I just dismiss it after that scene. It it feels just, too you just don't think yeah, yeah, exactly. You just don't think, okay, well, Maybe it, maybe it in the in the far reaches of your brain it, it plants the seeds that maybe there could be more than one killer. But like, if you're trying to figure out, and I'm I'm happy that we're going to go through as we go through the deaths and like, who do we think did what? Because yeah. it's very confusing and it's it it is still very unclear. I think, <laughs> but I think that's okay though because I I kind of I kind of dig it. Yeah, but I didn't know. I didn't know.
4: Well, in terms of the performance by Skeet Ulrich, I remember at the time. I'm sure my friends and I were just jealous of this unbelievably handsome hunk, you know, this But we were definitely of the mind like, oh, he's just a Johnny Depp wannabe, you know, the whole thing. But I think he's actually really good in this movie. Indeed. Very, very menacing and and that he turns on a dime and it's extremely effective. And I mean he's gone to have a pretty good career. I listen, here's a fun fact about me. I saw Chill Factor in theaters.
2: <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, that's your flex. Great movie. That's your... Uh, that,
4: that's my movie flex.
2: That, movie that, flex that that's that's going Twitter around. Thing. Yeah.
4: Uh, what, a, what a movie. But, you know, he was on that show Jericho, which is a huge cult show on CBS. Yeah. And we always joke that if you were famous in the 70s and 80s in horror movies or genre movies, you end up in a Rob Zombie movie. But if you were famous in horror movies from the 90s and the aughts, you end up on Riverdale. And that is where he resides today. He's on Riverdale. So getting that CW money, God bless him. I can't make fun (laughs) for that. How do you else feel about Ski Lurik in this movie?
3: I mean, I think he's, I think it's such an incredible choice. And really like now with the, you know, with the gift of hindsight, it really kind of hits in a different way because just like you guys were saying, like he is handsome. He is that jock. He is that bully. He's that privileged middle-class white boy that, you know, ends up really displaying some really disturbing behavior that now in, you know, in 2021 kind of takes on a different tone. That's really kind of, you know, uh, dare I say like incel behavior and it's, It was a killer and it was a person that I hadn't really seen before. Like in a slasher, you know, he doesn't have any like supernatural things. He's not Hmm. like actually clinically diagnosed in a mental hospital, you know, mental issues, but obviously has some. But he's got that guise. And especially like when you know who he is and then you go back and watch the film again like watching his performance throughout the whole film, knowing that he's the killer and like knowing what's going to happen. It just makes his whole performance just so creepy. The Mm. way like he's manipulating Sydney and like gaslighting her and playing with her and just, well, it's so messed. it's
4: so disturbing looking back. right?
2: And uh, to what you're saying, like this is something interesting that scream did versus a lot of late era slasher movies all dealt with. You kind of already knew who the killer was. Mm-hmm. So it brought mm-hmm. back that who done it element that you saw in a lot of the giallo that influenced that first run of uh slasher films. Yeah. And you hadn't had to, I don't think you had that in a in a slasher or a horror movie in a long time. Not since maybe the first Friday the 13th.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it really like foreshadowed so many sad things to come like obviously Columbine happened like so close after that and it's hard to like watch this now and not think of that to not see that like, you know, long black Oh, you know whatever that is that cloak
1: thing that coat. he's wearing
3: like yeah like it's hard not to see that and draw similar parallels between him and Stu. and like you know obviously this movie changed a lot of things and that's like one of those things that it's like oh damn they were really like ahead of its time in that way and kind of a scary way but i think it also embodied like what was happening in the 90s a lot too like you see it later as these kind of the screamsploitation films kind of explode this portrayal of these 90 teens I think Idle Hands is one of the best examples that I see, and the most fun examples of just like this societal view on teenagers and like their angst and their laziness and just kind of their aimlessness. And that's kind of that was really scary, I think, to a lot of people. Just this, the way that this young demographic was heading, I guess. And for sure, you see that through Billions too a lot.
4: I see it as like like you you were saying, like a disaffected youth. Like
3: yes, yeah, yeah, exactly.
4: Anybody, as we discovered, sadly, in the 90s with Columbine, like, oh, anybody could be a killer like that. It doesn't have to be some hulking monster in a hockey mask, you know, and that's, that's the most disturbing part about that era.
3: Or some creepy old dude, like it's young kids. Yeah,
4: like- it just, it's just, it's crazy. But as, as unfortunately as years have gone on, it's that's only become more and more apparent of mm-hmm. what anybody is capable of, you know. And I'm always reminded of when I think about this character is the movie Bully. Uh, which is based on a real life event of these teens who killed. It, it's a whole just awful situation that was happening down in Florida. But the Knicks star in character, Florida, man.
2: Florida, I'll tell you what, everybody.
4: <laughs> it all goes back to Florida, yeah, yeah, including no the Gerber brothers, by the way. So God yeah, help that's you all. Right. <laughs> but yeah, there's just that kind of creepy, punky guy at all, but there's something dark beneath the, the surface that Ulrich actually does capture very well and lives on really well. And we've talked a lot about the surprise and the twist of this movie, but it's also a testament to how good the rest of the story is because it doesn't hinge on the twist. It doesn't hinge on the reveal. Like, you know, like a lot of M. Night Shyamalan movies would after this, where it's hard to go back and enjoy them much at all because everything is building up to that moment where Scream has got so many great moments throughout that doesn't have anything to do with who was the killer. I think that's a testament to his focus on the characters.
5: Yeah, it's surprising, but by no like even if it just turned out to be in, like Stu, it still would yeah. have been a great movie. All you know, what I mean, like you didn't need the twist, but it was just kind of like that extra cherry on top that kind of blew your mind. But yeah,
4: well, yeah, I mean, speaking of Stu Mocker, portrayed by Matthew Lillard, he was never a suspect for me. I, I, I didn't think because I think it's because he wasn't. We didn't pay as much attention to him throughout the movie as we we paid. I feel like we paid more attention to even Dewey at a certain point. And there was definitely a point where I thought Dewey was the killer, possibly, yeah. possibly the killer.
2: Absolutely. And I was, I was afraid they were going to make him the killer because like Mac was saying about, you don't want people to die. You also don't want him to be the killer. Exactly.
5: <laughs> I think what's also confusing about Stu and, or even Billy is like, is the motive thing that they, that they bring up. Like when Tatum is being like stalked and essentially killed, you're not thinking it's Stu at all. You're like, "Oh, okay, well that's Stu's girlfriend." So, clearly it's not Stu. Cuz like, why would he want to kill his own girlfriend who seemingly has a good relationship with or whatever, you know? Like
4: but there's something off about both of them. Obviously. But
5: there's something off about both of them. But yeah, but and we'll you talk and about then those. also Billy. Yeah, the same thing though. It's just like you kind of dismiss them because they have personal relationships that seemingly they want and it's like, "Why would they want to kill this person?" But I I think early on in the movie they they mentioned that Stu used to date Casey Becker for like a heartbeat. And I think that kind of, I started thinking, I mean, that that's great because then, then at that moment I was like, really like, Oh, Oh, it could be someone in this circle. And then mm-hmm. you start thinking, but, but again, I, I really didn't know until they, until they give it away at the end. You know, I was really, you know, they do a good job
4: of throwing you off the scent,
5: like every scene.
4: Well, Rachel, I know you mentioned, you know, you weren't maybe thrilled about, or looking forward to the the last Halloween movie that much, but, I think about like the humor in this movie versus the humor in that, right? Because I think Stu, even after we find out he's a killer, is still funny, and we're still laughing at his lines, but the tension and the terror is still there. Whereas when they try to do something similar, I remember when when the kid says, oh, shit, in Halloween 2018, it doesn't fit that world, but it fits the world of Scream. Like yeah. The humor is fine. It's good.
3: I mean, Matthew Lillard, I mean, MVP for me, like he's so incredible and just brings like such a crazy energy. But like that also like totally makes sense. Like, I think we we all know this person. We all know this like crazy class clown kind of over the top personality. And he's so expressive with his face and his body. Like it's just perfect. And, and I also think that like the tragedy of Stu is that, you know, he wouldn't have done these things if it wasn't for Billy, you know, just like so many sort of you know, toxic killer relationships that you see like he I don't, I truly don't think that he would have done any of those acts or participated in those if like he wasn't, you know, sucked into Billy's world. And I think that you see that kind of. In a sense to him, especially towards the end with, I mean, with his like iconic lines, the fact that like, oh, mom and dad are going to be so mad at me, which I think he like improv too, which is, oh, Matthew Lillard, you're amazing. Yeah, But just like the fact that he says that, it's like, oh, you think you're, you think you're going to get away with this? Like your parents are going to be mad at you because like they wreck, like your house is wrecked. Like that's what you're concerned about right now.
4: (laughs) Well, he even says when she says, what are you going to tell him? He even says peer pressure.
3: Yeah, it's you know? like he thinks <laughs> yeah. that it, like he's not, like, really understanding the severity of what they're doing. And you, I mean, also, like, when he's getting stabbed, he's just like, all right, like, I'm feeling a little woozy here. You know, like, he's
4: like, "You do you not see what you're doing? Exactly. It's- and it's still funny, but you're still afraid. You know, v- Vanderbilt, do you, do you hear what I'm saying with that?
2: Absolutely. I, I agree with you 100%. Um, well, because Scream creates... Halloween created its own world and Scream creates its own world too. And I liken Scream's world almost to that fantasy world of Quentin Tarantino movies where Mm. everybody loves movies as much as Quentin Tarantino does. And I think Kevin Williamson does that same thing. And the humor that comes at the end of that is directly part of that, the meta self-referencing element.
4: And it can go so wrong. You know, it can, but I think it works here.
2: I think where that works is you're already in it. Like, you, you've you committed to the movie, and you can you can have this now. Whereas in Halloween 18, 2018, which you spoke of, it, it, they throw it in in the middle, and there's nothing that, there's <laughs> nothing that, there's, at that point. <laughs> there's nothing funny in the movie that leads to that. Scream's yeah. funny all the way through. I agree 100%. And, and
3: Stu is that character all the way through. Like, it wouldn't Indeed. make sense for him to, like, have, like, a hard right turn and suddenly turn, like, super cold, like Billy, you know, like that wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't fit his character. So the fact that they keep it consistent, like even towards the end, like even through all the horrible things that he does in that final scene, like that's, that's that character. So, you know, it's, it's supportive of what they've established the whole film.
4: Yeah. And something else there that I'm not sure was even in the actual script, but something I, I get, I get a vibe at least is, do you think that there was, if not a relationship between Billy and Stu, do you think that, that, it went beyond just Stu being pure pressure, but that maybe Stu had more of a romantic feelings for Billy. I mean that's the vibe I've definitely got over the years. I'm not sure if anybody else I don't think so. like a like a Leopold Loeb thing or something like I, don't, that. I, don't I don't I don't know
5: i I was trying I was kind of looking at that because again when they talk about motives are incidental, I was like, what is Stu's motive other than peer pressure like why would he just go along with all this with it's not like he's super close with uh with Billy. It doesn't well, seem well, we that We don't way. know.
4: We don't know. Well, they obviously were. That's the thing. We don't know anything.
5: Well, right. But I mean, like, even like Randy feels comfortable, like basically saying that he thinks Billy's the killer to Stu. So it's like, I just don't think, I don't think, I don't know. I don't think that there's, that they were really close, but, but like you said, there's clearly, there's something behind the closed doors because why, how else would he have gotten Stu to do this stuff with him? Do they do they posit that do I mean, I don't know. Like, what is his motive? Like, why does he
4: do it with Billy? Like, I don't get it. we saying peer pressure and, and affection.
2: It's yeah. honest, God, peer pressure. I don't think there's anything sexual in a relationship, but it's it. It's just that is how clo- you, when you have good friends in high school. You are that close. You spend he, every day in school together. Uh, <laughs> and in those days, you probably maybe even talked on the phone with your friend.
4: Sure. Back in the old days when the telephone, the telephone, yeah. not cellular, <laughs> not cellular phone, <laughs> telephone
3: he's also just bored like that's such a teenage that's nit, you know what i mean just like you see yeah. this town they live in like <laughs> they kind of established it's like sort of like rural nature like all these houses are really like kind of set apart and stuff you know that's you know why they end up having like all these like house parties and things like that and it's just i mean you can that can play into the whole 90s lazy teen thing like he just bored
4: yeah <laughs> the why disaffected not? nature coming back again well there's a couple yeah. things too you mentioned motive and i know it kind of goes, Stu kind of goes back and, not Stu, but Billy kind of goes back and forth as to whether or not you need a motive or you do have a motive. But there's another line. I'm not saying this is responsible for what's happening, but Sydney confesses at the end of the movie to Billy that she's afraid that she's going to end up like her mother. Now, do you think that that also is in the back of Billy's, his the status of his mind? Like, do you really think that instead of just seeking revenge on Sydney for what her mother did, in addition to that, do you think that he was also thinking that she would do the same thing to somebody else's family in the future? Do you think that that's where his mind was? Or do you think that he really was just, you know, beyond saving because he was just, it's hard to use certain adjectives at this point. Um, do, like where, do you think he actually had the motive?
3: I think he was just way? projecting. I don't think yeah. he was in Sydney in that way. I think he's just an angry young brat that was taking things like way too far.
4: Yeah.
5: yeah I mean, he has that, that even that moment where, like multiple times he's like pressing the sex subject with her. And he's like, yeah, well it's been a year since your mother died. <laughs> like was raped
4: and killed. You're like, dude, like get the fuck out of here. <laughs> like this guy the like, room, so,
2: Rachel, Yeah,
4: you mentioned this too. Looking back after watching it, like you forget that line that she wasn't just killed. She was raped and killed.
1: Oh yeah. And then, it's and so it's disturbing. like, Oh my
4: God. And cause you don't know. I mean, I, I, it's Billy. Right. And, and you think yeah. about what he's not trying to do to her, her own daughter. It's just, it's well, it's really dark. As funny as this movie is, it's extremely violent and it is, the material is extremely dark. I mean, it is yeah. wild.
3: I think that's part of, like, why he's pressuring her, too, is, like, some disgusting, deep-seated thing where he's, like, he knows that he did that to her mom and, mm. like to do that to her as well it's just oh it's so disgusting (laughs) and like icky but uh i I, on that same i mean while we're on that exact same thing at the end when you know billy admits to that whole thing and Mm. that motive and you see that moment on Stu's face where like he doesn't he didn't realize that like didn't Mm -hmm. put those things together like wait oh wait that's why we're doing this like yeah that's really oh god that that always hits me too because it's just like you know, Stu is, I'm not making excuses for him, but like he's a victim in his own way as well.
4: That's good. That's a great point. And because we know that Billy killed Sydney's mother, right? So let's actually go through, oh, by the way, shout out to Matthew Lillard who disappeared for a long time, but the last decade, he was an Alexander Payne's the Descendants. Very good on FX's short-lived show The Bridge yeah. and extremely memorable in a recurring role on Twin Peaks to Return, by the way, speaking of Julie Cruz. Okay. I wanted to go through, we don't have to spend too much time on this, God help us all. Not not that we ever spend too much time on anything on (laughs) Halloween. Let's try to run through and figure out who killed who in this movie.
5: Yeah, before we do that, though, I think something that, something we kind of just brush aside because we know the trope the voice box thing like that's also a huge reason why I didn't I'm always uh, the whole movie yeah. you're thinking do I recognize the voice do I recognize the voice do I recognize the voice or who could distort their voice to sound like that so you you really are like we haven't been introduced to this character yet or Whatever it is you don't think they're they're distorting their voice on that you know because it does sound like a, a seemingly normal voice which obviously it is but that was just a, another huge reason why the reveal is so good is because you just really don't think it's any of these people
4: and if you do uh, you're you waiting think for that you still think it's just one person masking their voice you don't realize that's exactly. a voice box that could do it for anybody that's yeah. a good point it's a good point all right but let's run through this here so for sure who do we think killed Casey and Steve. Uh, Rachel, who do you think killed Casey and Steve? Or do you Mm. think it was maybe two people?
3: A lot about this. I think it's Billy Mm. for a couple specific reasons. I I think that Billy has more fun with it and the way that he toys with her Mm. and the way he kind of his anger like turns really quickly. Also, he stabs her in the front, which, you know, he reaches around her and stabs her right in the heart. And I think that that's a colder move. And mm. for some reason, I think that if it were Stu, his, his relationship to her, he would have like just stabbed her in the front and like tried to remain separate from it.
4: That's, all that's
3: right. my, that's my thinking there.
4: All right, so we got one vote <laughs> one Vote One for Phil, Um All right, Mac, who do you think killed Casey and Steve?
5: Well, I initially was kind of thinking it was Stu because Ghostface gets kind of injured or, or when he, when he breaks through the glass, you think that maybe his arms cut. And then in the next sequence, when you see all the kids hanging out outside together, Stu has a long sleeve shirt on, Mm. so you can't see his arm. But I think obviously maybe he just didn't get cut because it's clear. It's more clear. That's Billy because Tatum says that she was with Stu all night. So, you know, it was just Billy doing the killing that night. Otherwise, unless, you know, Stu snuck out after Tatum fell asleep or something. That that seems unlikely. But yeah. And, and I also, they also say that the, they didn't get murdered till well after 10 o'clock. But then I was trying to figure out when does Billy visit Sydney that night? Is it pre-kill or after-kill? No, I don't think like, there's any
4: time play. I think it's just after that happens. He goes
5: So it's it. like 11 or midnight or something, I guess. You know?
4: so
2: Vanderbilt, what do you think? Oh, it's definitely Billy to what Max said uh, because Stu was with Tatum the night before. Uh, I initially thought it might have been both of them, like somebody doing the Literally. phone, somebody doing the killing. But uh, because of uh, Tatum's comment later, I'm going to say that was all Billy.
4: I, I think it's Billy, too, for all those reasons. And But in, to to go even further, I, I would also suspect that it's possible that this whole killing thing started with Billy saying, if, if Stu actually still did like Casey... Oh, yeah, yeah. He was like, hey, I'll do... It's kind of like Strangers on a Train, where he's like, hey, I'll, I'll kill her if you help me kill Sydney.' Like, there's totally. the motive thing, you know? I think that that also yeah. probably played into it, so... And obviously, Billy was out and about. It makes sense that he went over to Sydney's right after that. It's mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. Okay, so... Who attacked Sydney the first time on the porch? Yeah, but, you know, when she runs up the stairs. This is yeah. the first call at the, at the at home Vanderbilt. Who do you think?
2: That's got to be Stu. You think it's because Stu? Okay. there's he there's no mo or there's no alibi from anywhere else, and Billy shows up like right after that. Like they're both there, but that's Stu doing the heavy lifting on that one because there's no way Billy Billy would be a sweaty mess after that's that true. altercation.
4: Mac, would you agree with
5: that? I feel like it had to be Billy because Mm. that's a sequence that really doesn't make sense to me because if you're Billy and you're playing with Sydney and stuff, like when you show up in, when you show up as Billy and you're talking to her in the room and you're in the room with her and stuff, why not just kill her at that moment? You know what I mean? Like that seemed strange to me. So I thought maybe He's just, he was distracting her long enough to get Stu out of there so that they both were there. But I think, I don't know, that's a really hard scene because I, I mean, the t- playing the time, the fact that how he can get around the house really quickly and get up there, it seems like both of them were there. Yeah, are, we, are, we, but, are we
4: playing with time or is it just Stu and then Billy comes up? So- but if
5: both of them were there to kill her, it doesn't make sense to me that once she lets him in the room and, and he's like trying to calm her down that he wouldn't just kill her right there. Because Stu's obviously still in the house. Like, I, I don't know. That that That's a weird scene for me now.
4: Yeah. I think they're all playing. I don't think, you know, they're all wearing their masks. They, they would rather kill people with their masks on. I don't think it has to be a big reveal. But what do you, what do you think, Rachel?
3: I think it's Stu. I think that this is his, like, proving himself. Like, proving mm. that he's in, I think. I don't yeah. think their goal was ever to kill her in that moment. Like I genuinely yeah. like this was just them like starting this kicking off this whole thing with Casey and Steve and now like beginning to just torment Sydney a little bit.
4: I think that mm. the mistake in the scene in this for Billy is the phone dropping because first of all, you're now now you are kind of proving an alibi, right? If Ghostface if Father Death, excuse me, is attacking you <laughs> through the bedroom door and then Billy shows up, she's not gonna she's not gonna think that Billy's the killer at all, especially with the time frame. Yeah. And I think the the big problem is that the phone drops out. I don't think think that that was supposed to happen because obviously we find out all the phone calls later on. Okay. Who attacks Sydney in the school restroom? I'll start this one off. She had just spoken to Billy, but we had not seen Stu all day up to that point.
5: You know, do you know why? Wait, why? Because he was, he was in that stall all day long waiting for Sydney (laughs) to walk in. Like that, that is something that also that weird, weird to me. I was like, how long has he been in there waiting for the off chance that Sydney was gonna walk in there? Yeah, that, that was confusing. That
4: scene was not in the original script. Oh. That was added later because they wanted one more scare, and Kevin Williamson actually initially didn't like it, but he came around on it because Wes Craven included a little bit more information about Sydney's mother and the reputation that her mother had and how that was affecting her. So that she does work ultimately. But cynically, does it make sense? I don't know. Let's unless, unless Unless Stu and Billy knew like every time that day, City would use the restroom or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> on that particular floor. Yeah. Possibly. But uh, what Rich? would, it, I don't know.
3: I'm I'm very torn on this. I have a blank next to this. Attack. Yeah, It's a, <laughs> it's a tough like, one. Yeah. It's a tough one. And I think, I think it's maybe just for, you know, the reasons that you guys were just saying, like, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. So I think it's hard to kind of decide like, yeah, who, who is this? I'm going to go with Stu. I guess, for the same kind of reason. It's still him, like, finding his feet, maybe. And I, I kind of along that lines, I do want to point out I something I do like about Wes Craven's direction and the use of the costume in, in this is how, like, clumsy it feels. <laughs>
1: mm.
3: Like, you really feel like these are teenagers. Yeah. Like, they're just, like, all over the place. They're not, like, you know like intimidating cold, like you know, they, they don't present themselves like a Michael Myers or a Jason or, you know, they're not as flamboyant as a Freddy. you know, like it's very awkward and they fall over the place. And...
4: You can tell it's amateur hour, you know, it's not yeah. like yeah. You're possessed <laughs> by a demon or something like that. Yeah, and exactly. Going around killing people.
5: Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to say that that's something that I was really torn about during the movie watching it this time was there's a lot of moments where you're like, wait, what? Where you see Ghostface like all the time, like lurking in places that are like, wait, so you're full on Ghostface costume just walking around the grocery store? Like, yeah. uh, there's like moments <laughs> like that where you're like, wait, what the fuck? But it lends itself to the idea that it's kid, it's a kid, it's a teen because they're and and the thing that's scary about it is is that they're taking all these crazy chances. They could easily be seen by someone else at that moment. And, and many other moments, or even in the school, something I also toyed with was maybe the person that attacks Sydney in the bathroom was just another stupid kid that it wasn't. Because all he does is jump out at her and she gets out the door and then runs. You don't oh, know yeah. if he was actually had a knife or, or if it was real or if you're that you're just like, is it just another prank? Is it just another kid at the school? Because it's right after that scene.
4: It doesn't have a knife. Are you sure?
5: Yeah, but I'm saying you don't know if it's real. You don't know. You don't know. Oh, like, uh, it, yeah, it, it, I think it's you know? supposed to be.
4: I think it's supposed well, to be. Well, I, I this, know. So. I'm
5: just saying. I'm just. I got, all right,
4: gotcha. Christ. All right. Listen. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> oh my God! I'm running out of water. Very important question. And this is something else that was also added, by the way. This is not in the original script because I think we had gone too far in between killings. And and Bob Weinstein said, "No, no, no. We th- there must be blood. Who killed the principal? Mike Vanderbilt."
2: It's definitely Billy in the bathroom, and it's definitely Billy that kills the principal. Hold on, oh so wow.
4: Why do you think it's Billy in the in the restroom, though? So we didn't get your answer on that.
2: Oh, it, it the boots. Stu would never wear boots like that.
4: That's <laughs> that simple. Tell <But> <laughs> it. I don't in think a- he had the time because he had just talked to Sydney though, and she ran away from him to go to the restroom.
5: Oh, it's right. We
4: sneak? gotta move on from that one. We, we're, sorry, we're moving on from that. We gotta go well, right we gotta he, cut to the you know, principal. I,
2: was, I mean, if you really wanted to stretch it, like, let's assume, no, but that's on the, it's on the second floor, isn't it? Second because floor. Because Billy, sorry. Billy somebody, whoever, whoever it is, has to get out the window, right? They can't get out of the school, right?
4: Well, no, they could easily have run out of the restroom, gone in another direction, torn off that cloak and mask, and they're good. But who killed the principal? That's what I want to
2: Oh, that's Billy, right? Because now I'm rethinking everything because of the whole bathroom thing.
4: But there's a reason I think it's Billy too. Uh, Rich, what do you think?
2: I think
3: it's Billy. That's my that's my gut instinct.
4: Oh,
2: because Stu is hanging out. He he leaves the school with Tatum. Yep. Tatum
4: and Sydney. So I think he's it's I think it is Billy. And also because Bob Weinstein said there had to be somebody to (laughs) to kill the (laughs) principal, Mac.
5: Yeah. No, I was going to say the same thing because Stu it, it cuts right from Stu hanging out with Tatum and Sydney. So you're like, oh, obviously it's not Stu. But yeah, I was definitely in Billy. Oh, and I had another question. It's not really a, a kill situation, but, well, we'll get there when we get to towards the end. I'll, I'll oh, bring sure. it up.
4: Keep All right, going. don't forget. Don't forget to bring it up. Yeah. Okay. You know, re-watching this again, I'm, I'm, t- I'm convinced about this whole Strangers on a Train thing because I think it is Billy who kills Tatum or is responsible for Tatum's death, not Stu, because I think Stu is still entertaining party guests. And this would once again tie into the whole, I'll kill your girlfriend if you kill mine thing. Right, I think that would make sense, the original script at least. We'll go back to you, Mac. What do you think?
5: Or Tatum's death? Yeah. I don't know. Was kind of kind of going back and forth that it was kind of like a... I think Stu sets it up. I think it's Billy that does the kill. Mm. I think Stu's too much of a loser to kill his own girlfriend. <laughs> but I, I do think Billy's Only winners the one their does girlfriends. the kill. We have to make that better. I, I was clearer. trying to think because I was like, well, you know... He closes the door, but then was he already in the garage or was he, you know, like like, like timing wise, did he, did Billy know to be in the garage or did, I, I think, you know what I mean? Like, well, we there's, also there's hadn't seen of, like,
4: Billy at this point in the party. We had not seen Billy yet. Because yeah, after this, yeah. then we see him talk to Sydney. But what do you, what do you think, Rachel?
3: I, I mean, I think it's Billy. I think it was a, a crime of opportunity. I mm-hmm. think that, you know, he was there mm. already and like maybe didn't necessarily have a, plan of what he was going to do but then tatum just happened to come out in the garage so he's like all right then perfect i also think it shows like some you know some quick thinking with the garage and like kind of a fucked up way of thinking that like oh all right i'm gonna push this button and i gotta be honest this scene always gets me between this scene and there's a scene that mike rothman probably knows this but like in the X-Files, there's an episode where there's, like, teenage witches, and there's a scene oh, yeah. in a garage where, like, they, like, impale their boyfriend with, like, a garage spring or something. Yep. And that is, like, terrified me. I saw that way too young. <laughs> and yeah. so then seeing this, it was like, oh, these garage doors are just, like, death traps. <laughs> I think,
4: who's in that? Is it, uh, what's her name, from um, Ginger Snaps in that episode?
5: Oh, I don't remember. I haven't seen it forever. A like, what's her name? Me. God,
4: it's somebody famous. Yeah, but no, I know you're talking about though. Great, great episode of X Files, by the way. <laughs> um, one of many. I love the X Files. Obviously, at the end, it's Stu running around for the most part, chasing Sydney at the party. I, I, I'm, I, I pretty much have it's that it is Stu causing most of the party havoc right after Tatum's yeah. dead because Billy's playing dead up in the
2: up in the bed. Yeah, so. and I think uh, I would agree with everybody that. Uh, it's Billy that kills Tatum. And I like your theory, Justin, uh, the strangers on a train thing. Because while there is kind of a, I'm sure, in the in the uh, the world of the movie, there's a lurid thrill in killing your own girlfriend. But that would make sense with why Stu is at Sydney's, Because it I'm is saying. a, yeah. you do this and I'll do this for you.
4: Yeah, it makes sense. Well, this is going to be fun going, toward, going forward because there are different motives in every movie as to why people are getting killed. So it's going to be interesting to kind of look back and say, well, why... Why was this person chosen? Or maybe they were just chosen at random in future movies. We'll figure it out.
5: There's also there's a little tiny time jump, I think, that makes things confusing in terms of who's who. When you have Ghostface stalking like in the woods when Sydney and Tatum are talking, it oh, cuts yeah. to the woods. And you see Ghostface kind of walk by. The next scene, it cuts directly to the video store where Stu, Randy, and Billy are all in the store at, at that moment. So like, well, I think
4: that could just be – that doesn't have to be necessarily like a cut-to moment. That could just be later that afternoon, you know? Right,
5: but like, you're not thinking that necessarily, you know sure. what I mean? So, like, sure. it, that's a good – Like, it just like kind of throws you off the scent once more, you know?
4: You might be thinking Dewey at that point.
2: Well, let's listen.
4: We, – we've talked about these characters <laughs> yeah, a lot. But let's...
2: Well, there's, there's one we missed when they – it's not a kill situation, but when Sydney gets to call at Tatum's house. Is that? Oh, yeah. oh, oh that's what we, I was going to bring up. Because we think it's yeah. Billy, because she thinks it's Billy. Remember, you, got, you had one phone call. You could the make. one phone call, that's that phone call, right? I remember being in the theater. It looks like they're setting up Dewey there, too. Yeah.
5: Well, I, I was really going back and forth because I was like, well, like, why would Billy lie about it? Because it couldn't have been Billy because he would have been like searched. They would have found the voice yeah. box on him, right? Yeah. But I think the reason he lies about the call is because his one call was to Stu. Yes. But he says that to make the call, but then to to throw them off the scent. But that's why, because it doesn't make sense. It was like, why would he lie about the call then? But obviously, you know, yeah, I think he's, he's trying to be quick on his feet. But at that point,
2: because he didn't have time to to tell Stu that he had been arrested and not just got sent home. Because Stu probably hauled ass after the attack at Sydney's house. Right. With no costume on, because they found the costume there. And I'm assuming the boys had two. I'm assuming that they each had one. Yeah, I would say so.
0: All right. So you guys know that I've been trying to lose weight lately. You know, I've been yeah. kind of uh, on the bigger side for most of my life, but I've, I've been able to drop a lot of weight because I've been trying to eat healthier. You look good. Thank Thank you. you the problem cool. is, is More I can't cool. cook at all. Like, I'm basically I can know. just make, I've like— I've tasted your food. I don't know if you guys ever heard of factor meals before. Yeah. No. Okay, so factor meals, it's like these easy, ready-to-eat meals that they'll send to your house. I'm oh, I'm sure nice. you've heard of services that do yes, that. Type yes, of thing. Yes, yeah. yes, 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 sure. yes. Where they send food, and it's—what this. What I actually really liked about factor is it's like, it has to be kind of idiot-proof for me because I can't cook or do anything, but it's like ready in two minutes. It literally comes— Everything together, you don't have to like make anything. Wrapped? It's it's all put together in its own thing. Two minutes. It's not frozen, which actually makes it awesome.
2: Oh, nice! You know,
0: the frozen food yeah. It comes like in a box. It's like chilled, like yeah. with the cooling stuff. But uh, you got all kinds. So I did the keto one, but they also have like calorie smart protein plus. They've even got like so. My wife ended up really liking these these like energy shots. Okay. That they they put in the box that we ordered, where she it's literally like just a little shot of different kinds of energy shots that were awesome.
2: That sounds amazing.
0: I always was like, I'd see these commercials or I'd hear commercials for stuff, but I thought factory meal seemed like something that was really threading that needle and would have been really, really perfect for me. But dude, they had like pancakes smoothies who doesn't know, love
2: pancakes
0: dinners and stuff like that yeah. so you they know.
2: have breakfast
0: they got like midday snacks and uh, so i thought it was like
2: perfect. get it in get it done yeah. boom if you're just looking for yeah. like
0: fast premium options and you don't have to really cook or be able to do anything sure factor is awesome for that kind of stuff and i thought the and the quality of the meals restaurant quality meals that i just could like heat and eat dude so it's not like you're you know your frozen stuff you get at the grocery store so if you guys want to try factor meals i'd say go for it because it's really helped me out and I've, i was actually really surprised all you guys have to do is head to factormeals.com slash badmovies50 and use code badmovies50, thats five zero to get 50 percent off thats code badmovies 50 at factormealscom slash badmovies 5-0, to get 50% off. That's code badmovies50 at factormeals.com slash badmovies50 to get 50% off, guys. Give it a try. That's half. I know. Hi, I'm Jen. I love watching horror movies. I also have PTSD and I go to a lot of therapy.
2: I'm Lara. I have anxiety and depression and love having the shit scared out of me. Wait, what? I'm Mike. I'm a therapist, and I love talking about horror movies and mental health.
0: (laughs) We love horror films for how much they scare us and for how much they help
2: us. Because we love talking about mental health, a.k.a. how crazy we are, and the role the horror genre can play in our self-care, we started a podcast called Psycho Analysis. Every episode, we talk about a movie and how it relates to a different topic in mental health and wellness, whether it's a deep dive or a shorter episode of a movie that makes us feel all warm and fuzzy.
1: But
0: not in a weird way. Unless we're talking about hot horror sweaters, because then it is very weird. True. Very weird. <laughs> Our episodes drop every Thursday on the Consequence Podcast Network. Listen to find out how horror, horror
1: can, can heal. heal. <laughs>
4: All right, well, we talked about a couple of characters, a couple of sick fucks, if you ask me, but I think it's time to move on to our next section that we're affectionately calling Everybody's a Suspect. He's got killer printed all over his forehead. Okay. Really? Why'd the cops let him go, smart guy? Because obviously they don't watch enough movies. This is standard horror movie stuff. Prom night revisited, man. Yeah. What's funny, I think David Arquette gets top billing in this movie, but we're not going to talk about David Arquette first. We're going to talk about... The one and only, the ageless uh, Nev Campbell <laughs> as Sydney Prescott. What can be said about Sydney? One of the great "quote unquote" final girls. Even though she does survive alongside Gale Weathers every time, so technically they're both the, the final "quote unquote" girls. Who wants to start off, Rachel? W- w- what did you think when you first saw Scream? And were you familiar with Nev Campbell at this point? Were you watching like Party of Five or anything, or was this your introduction to her?
3: I think I had seen The Craft before I had seen mm. this, so. And that, I mean, like any young girl in the 90s, that was a very <laughs> formative film. So I had already like, you know, had an affection for her for that. So I was happy to see her in it. And I think she does a great job and brings a real depth to the character of Sydney. And yeah, I, I yeah, I was stoked to see her in it.
4: Yeah, Vanderbilt, what, how do you think about the performance? I think she, she plays distraught very well without it coming off as too much, you know?
2: I think uh, Scream is a testament to what happens when you actually do when you're casting. Like, look for good actors and actresses. Like, I, I, I buy everything in this movie, and I knew I had known about Nev Campbell from Party Five, right? That was already. Yeah, that on. was like yeah. a
4: year or two before. Yeah, that's what. Yeah.
2: Yeah, no, I think I think she delivers a great performance, and there's a reason. Like, uh, I mean, she's the anchor for all four of these films. Like we've said, a film that focuses on the heroes, the ensemble, rather than the villain.
4: Good point, Mac. Were you where were you on her? I don't, remember, I don't think we were having many Nev Campbell discussions in 1995. But where,
5: where, where uh, were you? I mean, on her? like, I think I, I mean, I knew she was in the graph and, and party five, like we said. But I didn't. I wasn't like a Nev head at the time uh, of this movie coming out. But uh yeah, no, I I, I think she's great. I, I it's it's again, it's one of those things where it's like if you have a likable character that you you want to be with, you want to believe. You know you want to believe that she's right about her mom like like I, and I buy all that stuff it's so good to see her actually like when she has that conversation with gail like you see like the you know the, the the wheels turning when she starts to really kind of think well maybe maybe you know she wasn't right about cotton i don't know i like that though it's like it's a complicated character i think she just she pulls it off really well she also gets to say stud bucket earlier in the movie <laughs> which I, and she's an indigo girls fan <laughs> <laughs>
2: I love looking
4: for the posters poster. in, in teenagers. Well, there's so, a, teenagers. There's a poster on somebody's wall that I can't wait to discuss uh, on, <laughs> on Tatum's wall. A headshot of somebody, but we'll discuss it oh, in yeah, a second. yeah, I can't wait. I think what Neve Campbell has to do in this movie is very hard because she has to play... She has to, like you said, Vanderbilt, she has to kind of ground everything, right? But She's also somebody who's not in the loop. However, she's also aware of what's happening at all times. She's one of those rare characters that's being attacked from minute one. She's not... Stumbling into this in the last act, you know, she still has moments where you cheer for her, especially when she punches Gail. Everybody has a big laugh at that scene. But again, as a grown up, looking back on this and really realizing like what Billy did to her mother and having to watch her facial reactions to that, because like Wes Craven, he's all about close-ups, especially in this movie. Like there's not a lot of wide shots of people like it's like, here's your reaction shot to everything happening. There's a lot of pressure on an actor and like every shot of Nev Campbell is pretty much a close up. And I think she does a great job in this. I think she's always been a good actor. I think uh, I, I did no Party of Five at this point. Of course, Are You Afraid of the Dark? You know, years earlier, she was on an episode of that. <laughs> she still looks the same as she did 30 years ago, which makes me very depressed because I look ancient <laughs> compared to her at this point in my life.
5: I also had a question. There's a sequence when she's in the house and she's talking to Tatum on the phone about her being picked up or coming over to hers at 7 o'clock. And she walks through the house and she thinks she hears something for a second. Mm-hmm. And then she goes, and then she ends up taking a nap. Do you think that Stu's already in the house? Or is that possibly the father bound already in the house? Like, that creeps me out to think that Stu was there for, like, hours, like, hiding in the house, like, waiting till Billy gets there and they can do their thing. I
4: think Stu shows up while she's asleep. I think they sneak in, or they start to plan that thing. I think that's what happens at that point. But here's something I want to point out with that character. I, I can't remember exactly who kills who in the future entries, but... She kills Stu with the TV, right? Great, mm-hmm. great death scene, by the way, for Stu. Very funny. And she does shoot Billy. Isn't it her that gives Billy the headshot at the end? Yes. It's not Dale. It's, it's her, right?
3: Dale shoots her first, and then she finishes it off.
4: Yeah, because Randy says it always comes up for one last scare, right? Okay, so let's make the note of this. So Sydney has killed two people in the screen franchise. All right, I got to make a note somewhere of this for future entries, because I'm not sure who she kills in the next... I can't remember who she kills in the next three entries, but sydney prescott god bless her we wish her all the best next up honestly share's top billing this is an actor who was in of course cocoon the return uh masters of the universe she was on family ties as alex p keaton's girlfriend and coincidentally dated michael keaton as a matter of fact how about that keaton coincidence she went on to star in fx's dirt uh abc's cougar Town and nbc's what's it called? What's the name of that show from the 90s? Uh, Jennifer Aniston.
2: Oh, Buddies. Buddies. Comrades. Buddies, Comrades? Is that what you said, Rachel? <laughs> uh, I think it's actually called Living Single. Was it the one about the three girls who live in one apartment <laughs> and then the two guys who live in the other one?
4: Yeah, and then like... Yeah, it's mean, Living running Single.
2: Running. That, was, that wasn't on NBC. That was on Fox. That was a Fox. That was a Fox show. Anything it's, it's, the,
5: it's the one where they're friends.
4: Friends. <laughs> it was on the tip of my tongue the entire time. We're talking about Courtney <laughs> Cox's Gail Weathers. And this is a fun—I'm sure this is fun for her, right? Because this is a total 180 from who she was as Monica Sellers on, on Friends. Great performance. And what I love about this character is that even at the very— even all the way throughout the entire movie, she is still who she is. She's still selfish, which is a nice touch. They're not afraid to just let her be who she is. There's no big I love you, Sydney" and like a big hug at the very end. You know what I mean? There's no forged friendship there. And I think she's terrific in this movie. Vanderbilt, what do you think?
2: Stone Cold Fox of the movie. Oh,
4: there, there's the winner I, for folks.
2: I had a crush on her. Like I already liked Courtney Cox, but like seeing her as Gail Weathers at 16 years old just did it for me. Because I was always obsessed with being. Oh, I always wanted to be older. I never liked being a teenager. I wish I had enjoyed being a teenager more. I always wanted to be older. So I identified with like Dewey's character, and then to see through the course of the movie him and Gail get together, I just thought that was the coolest. And like you said, just a terrific performance. Like man, she's good at playing the bitch. But you understand, like, I, I completely understand her motives. And I look, the character, Gail was right. She was right. It was, she Gale's was right. right. Like, you, you can sit there and badmouth her all you want, but she knew that that man was innocent.
4: That's funny. As somebody who ended up going to journalism, I, I find myself siding with Gail a little bit more. as Any as <laughs> problems that might stir up. But what about you, Rachel? Where, where were you on Courtney Cox at this point in her career when you watched this for the first time?
3: I mean I don't know if I to be honest if I had much of an opinion on her at that time outside of friends I don't know if I'd really seen anything at that time but I mean I love this performance I take a little issue with how she is referred to as a bitch all the time because like even she even refers to her character that way in like an in interview Courtney Cox actually refers to it that way. But I don't I don't know if that's really like how it is. You know, she's just like she's really driven and she's she's like this one person that's saying like this guy's innocent. Like, I yeah. really believe this. Like, she just really has this idea and this different theory about what happened and she's really aggressively pursuing that. Like, yes, maybe her motives are a little weird. Like, it's definitely weird that like news teams keep showing up at a high school or like surrounding <laughs> high school students. I mean, Linda Blair, that's, yeah, she,
1: yeah,
4: yeah. that
3: like shoves the mic in her, you know, face and like, what do you think? I can't remember what she says, but it's like, who does this? But I guess people just do it now on Twitter. But, uh,
4: yeah, it's now it's just all yeah. keyboard warriors, but, they do a good job with her character, too, though, because at first you do think she's just a straight up tabloid reporter yeah. who who posted, who posted, oh, my God, we really are living in the social media age, who mm-hmm. wrote about, who wrote nasty things about Sydney's mother. That's what we're, that's what we think, right? Just yeah. salacious rumors about her mother and whether or not her mother behaved a certain way doesn't have anything to do with it. The bottom line is the main problem was, is that Sydney believed that Gail was lying about thinking that Cotton was not the murderer. And that's, that's what we find out as it goes on. Yeah. That's a great way of un- unveiling that character, as opposed to just being like a one-note reporter. Like, no, no, she's she's actually onto something. Like Vanderbilt said.
3: Oh, totally. Also, her outfits are on point. Oh, oh my man!
4: Like she looks incredible.
3: <laughs> like head to toe, just looks amazing. The whole film.
4: <laughs> it's 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 perfect. Like tabloid TV, like current affair wardrobe. Like the wardrobe is perfect perfection.
2: So sexy and like. Such great highlights in one and, and two that it's unfortunate what happens to her bangs by part three. Oh God! <laughs>
5: well, you're not a, you're not Team Bangs, we, huh? Uh, oh my oh, God! Th- that was,
2: I like Bangs, but those are ugh, barely like, I don't know like what you call bangs. those. Anyway, <laughs>
5: Mac,
4: what do you think about uh, Gail Weathers in this?
5: No, I really I think she's so funny and so fun in this movie. Yeah, that that neon green outfit she's got in the beginning oh. this is just
4: crazy. You're like holy ah, like
5: this is the '90s. <laughs> <laughs> but uh I love the interplay between Kenny I know that she kind of shames him for being <laughs> big but just all that like the Jesus the camera hurry and he's like my name's not Jesus you know it's just like it's just all the like <laughs> offhanded stuff like throughout the movie and, and and even that moment that could be so dumb. But when his body falls on the windshield and she's like, God, Kenny, I'm sorry, but get off my fucking windshield. Like she sells it, you know, like I just love that uh, that all the dialogue that could go so wrong in this movie is totally sold by the cast. And that's, that's, you know, credit to the cast members, obviously. But yeah, I really, ah, she's such a force in the film, which could have just been, you know not not an important character becomes a, a huge character. <laughs> so yeah, I I i big fan of uh, Courtney Cox ever since uh, Masters of the Universe and uh, obviously the Bruce Springsteen video. The Masters
4: of Science, yes, I think and that was another Dark. TV show she was on. Bruce Springsteen, that's the first thing. Miss Sits of Science. Yeah, that's, that's right. Miss Sits of Science. Well, we're really going back, we're really aging ourselves here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um and you know, I speaking of her selling to performance, like I buy all the romantic stuff with her and Dewey. Oh, well, for good well, reason. I mean, yeah, Well, Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's acting or if that's I think they were literally just falling in love with each other,
4: and you could see it happening. But I also on like that it's the because the magic of the movies.
5: You know, when they're on top, when when he falls on top of her in the woods, like you know, she goes in for the kiss. You know, I, I, I like that because you're like, okay, she's not just like putting him on to get the story. Like you buy that she's also, you know, and in, actually interested. In and I, I really, I dig that. Yeah,
2: that great exchange where I've been 25 for a year. That is just sharp writing and it's delivered so well
4: oh yeah the yeah yeah we will uh be discussing mr dewey Riley later on but let's talk about tatum played by rose mcgowan who is the witty funny friend obviously of sydney's the chemistry between all the characters is great but i think the chemistry between her and sydney is also really good she's also very funny in this too which is something this is something else that kind of separates itself from the 80s pack right because you never really had like the funny woman. It was always like the funny guy. You know what I mean? It was like Ted or Ned or, you know, all these other goofy guys. But She's like, she's obviously gorgeous in this, but she's also very funny. And it's, that's also a Kevin Williamson tick, right? Where everybody is kind of clever and funny in this, in this special universe that he's created. I think she's really good. I think, I think you said too, Rachel, that death scene uh, is brutal. And that's a death scene that was actually cut down. That was one of the, the edits that they had to kind of keep going back to. I think actually on HBO, it is the uncut death where you really see her head smash against the top of the garage pretty aggressively because by today's standards, I mean, nothing compared to what we see on TV. Mac, what do you think about uh, Rose McGowan as Tatum in this?
5: Uh no, I love her in this. Uh, I, I, like you said, I, she's so funny in this. Like, damn, bitch went down thing. Like, just all that stuff, all the lines are just so so well done. And her interplay between um, her brother and herself in the movie is so funny. That's something that we were saying earlier is, like, you really do buy the relationships in this. Like, I buy that their brother and sister, I buy her and Nev Campbell's relationship. Like, they just get the characters down so well. Like, but again, you know. Yeah, I, I, I really dug her character a lot. Although I will say there's one missed opportunity, and I wouldn't blame her. I think it's more the writing. But there's a moment in the garage where there is a cat. And she does not talk to the cat. Oh, boy. No, wait, wait, wait. So this is no coming over to this talking. season. There's no humans talking to animals in this uh, franchise, unfortunately, at least so
4: far. Well, there's always more. Maybe in part five, there'll be a full-on conversation. Who knows? <laughs> Rachel, what do you think about uh, Tatum in this movie?
3: Man, I mean, yeah, I love Tatum. She's so feisty. She's a believable match for Stu. Like, you would believe that they're together because they oh, both yeah. share this kind yeah. of energetic, you know, extrovert behavior. She's also a great friend, which I think, like you had mentioned earlier, I think, Justin, like the fact that, you like, these friendships, and you really see that, you know, there's there's moments, there's lots of moments where it's just them talking to each yeah. other and the, like the genuine concern and way that she like looks out for Sid and like time and time again, I think is really unique. And you don't really see that a lot, especially like in the films that, you know, it's pulling from yeah, I mean I love her outfits. I think Rose McGowan is obviously like gorgeous but also like looks the part and she's the only person to really kind of tell Sydney honestly like you can do better than Billy. Like that's messed mm. up. Like you don't deserve him. She's also a good like she she drops a lot of pop culture references at the time too. Like Oh yeah. She, She's kind of like the. To me, she's kind of the embodiment of that teenage girl. Like maybe more than Sydney is. I think like she really shows the time and like yeah. She. I can't remember all the references she pulls from, but well, I know that the, there's uh,
4: like if you pause all Geer the right moves and, at the right part. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah the see all the right and moves and like Venus. Richard
3: Gear, like that whole thing that was going on. Oh like, yeah. Like she actually talks and acts like I think a teenage girl would, and, but she's also like really confident and funny, and yeah, I think she's just great.
4: She, these all these people auditioned for different roles in the movie, but I think she almost didn't get the role because they didn't They, they didn't want to have two brunettes as, as friends <laughs> for some. You know, this is the nineties. I guess don't know. So then she dyed her hair blonde, and uh, she said she actually yes, did a lot more with the role than was maybe on the page initially, and you could tell. I mean, I feel like a lot of people were given free reign. Like I said, that's yeah, you know, that's Craven gave people the opportunity to do that, and so. But Vanderbilt, we were talking about this. I think we all were. The other day.
2: Yes. i trying to figure
4: is out it? if if when um, Sydney's saying the Night at Tatum's, if you look on the nightstand in between the beds, there's like a poster, there's like a headshot of some actor.
2: I assumed it was Rex Manning, and this was part of the Empire Records cinematic Maramax, universe.
4: More universe, but it, it's not. No, no. It, I found out who it is. It is Grant Goodeve, who was on a show called Eight is Enough.
2: Oh, yeah. With the Van oh. so oh. Really kid. Uh,
4: really, really good looking hunk, you know.
2: More importantly,
4: to tie into scream, and he ended up playing years later Norma's real estate agent slash guy she was seeing in uh, Twin Peaks: The Return. If anybody remembers ah. that, who she leaves at the very end to go off with, yeah. And Twin Peaks: The Return, Matthew Lillard. So There you go, reunion.
5: <laughs> this such a random thing to have on the wall for Tatum. Like, is she a big Eight Is Enough fan? Like, I, I don't know. Just a way well, here is
4: something else. There was actually an Eight Is Enough reference that was cut from the movie. Oh, really? And look. You know Kevin Williamson. I wouldn't be surprised if he had a crush on Grant Goodeve in the seventies. He's a good-looking guy. I'll say that. So yeah, you know uh, Rose McGowan's well-publicized life, especially over the last five years or so, um, because she she went on. She she did Jawbreaker, which was a pretty minor hit, like two thousand, I think it was. But she had a really rough time of it in Hollywood, as many people have, and she was actually at the forefront of the Me Too movement and discussing a lot of. Awful scenarios and stories about uh, Hollywood producers, especially Harvey Weinstein, and is, if not, I would say she's probably the most responsible for his downfall. If anybody wants to comment on that, but.
5: Did that, do you think that, uh, what has she done before this, or was this her big This is her big role? break.
4: This, I, I can't think of anything before this that she was in. But there were I issues curious, after like, this with Mir- dealing with Miramax and Harvey Weinstein. We don't have to go into huge detail about that. But <laughs> Anyway, I just want to give her a shout out because, uh, you know, it's it's hard to even get into. I don't even know what to say. But Rachel, Mike, any any comment on that? Nothing on that.
3: I (laughs) I mean, it's. I don't know if she's ever publicly like related anything to this production.
4: Yeah, that was my question. Yeah,
3: specifically. Like, I don't know if she has, but obviously, like Harvey Weinstein is just the worst,
1: obviously.
3: (laughs) And (laughs) it's 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 hard to imagine that with this being her big break that. I don't know. It's really kind of sad to think about like what happened with that initial casting and to know that that, that may that may have been the beginning of, you know, uh-huh. their uh, relationship, for lack of a better word, but just, just how they interacted together. So it does kind of cast a weird shadow, like looking back and knowing all of that stuff. But yeah, I don't know if she's ever like spoken publicly about this production specifically, but obviously it's you can't ignore it. and. She is an icon, and she deserves every bit of you know accolade that she gets for this because, yeah, she started a movement, and it's she's incredible for sure.
4: Yeah, and I've I've read some interviews with her about actual onset. It was a good experience. She liked working with Wes Craven, so you know, but like you said. I don't know all the specifics, but what went on behind the scenes, was it on this movie, was it on a future movie with Miramax, but, you know, obviously, no matter what, Harvey Weinstein casts this wide swath, this wide black mark over all these movies. I mean, he produced some of the greatest movies of all time, but there will always be that, you know, Miramax Presents at the beginning of a movie, you're like, ugh, you know, it's just... But that's a whole other podcast, folks. But it was, we had to definitely point that out, that Rose McGowan, her big break here, and, and was is at the forefront of a major movement that's still going on today, so... Now, her brother in this movie is Dewey Riley, played by David Arquette, and we've talked about him a lot already. But uh, I forgot how funny and sweet he was in this movie. I think that when he picks up the phone and says, <laughs> "Hello, hello," and that's very funny to me, right? And then, do you know oh, what that man. constellation is? <laughs> and she yeah. says, "No, what is it? I I don't know. That's why I was asking you." <laughs> It just the chemistry is exploding off the screen, folks. People are falling in love left and right. And it's a wonderful thing to see. You no, know, we
5: something we were talking about in prior episodes is the Keystone Cops thing not working in these kinds of movies. And I feel like this is this is totally that. But it re, but it
4: really works. Sure, it's a and comedy I, and this and isn't it, Halloween five, I, you know what I mean? It's like Well,
5: well that's yeah, but I mean like also I mean, it's still horrific, you know what I mean? Like you're not expecting it to work, but even like scenes that <laughs> not quite as bad as
2: not as quite as bad as Wes Craven's uh, Last House and the Left coppers.
5: Oh God! Oh, jeez, oh. Yeah, but like I just love that, that sequence where he he uh, meets the sheriff, and the sheriff's like smoking outside, but he's like eating that strawberry ice cream cone, <laughs> trying to look cool. You know, <laughs> it's so funny.
3: I think having the connection between between Tatum and Dewey too, like really gives that another level because he's not just some like doofy cop like he's like it's her brother so yeah, like you get yeah. that interplay between them and the fact that like he knows all these kids so it makes sense that like he would go to the party like he would be the one kind of keeping an eye on so it just it makes more sense narratively too i think to have that connection while also just being really adorable just to, to see the brother and sister like interplay between them is just great
4: well I like the twist totally. that it's the younger sister that's embarrassed by the older brother as opposed to the other way around which you usually see in these movies you know
1: yeah
4: It also has a whole other tragic element that i don't know if they really ever dove into in the future movies you know it's always about you know sydney and everything she's gone through but it's like yeah, and also Dewey, like, lost his sister, too. But, I, I, I it, look, we'll yeah, discuss it as a... the movies go on. We'll discuss it as the movies yeah, go on. Yeah, I was
5: curious about that, too, because, like, yeah, I mean, I guess you don't really see too much of him at the end of this film. But, yeah, and then in the sequel, I was wondering if they bring that up very much, you know, or, or deal with him dealing with that, yeah.
4: I think they do a little bit in the second one, at least, but we'll yeah. talk about that in a couple of months. Vanderbilt, obviously, at the end, do you think that he was dead when he was stabbed in the
2: back? Oh, I, the whole series, I kept thinking they they killed him (laughs) off. Especially the second one. And I, yeah, and I was, oh, that, that's the one, yeah, yeah. I think that's a testament to the writing and to the performance that I don't think I was the only person. In fact, I can confirm, like talking to you uh, three, that I wasn't the only person that just didn't want to see this guy die or be the killer.
4: I I agree. And, And sometimes he's, when I think about. Looking back now, I mean, everybody wanted to be somebody we're going to talk about in a minute. Everybody looked up at Jamie Kennedy and thought he was hilarious, but his career went in like really bizarre, unfunny directions. But I still think that Dewey is very funny in this. And even though he's he's like a, he's like literally a lovable loser, which is Mm -hmm. hard to find because I think sometimes I get skewed between lovable loser and, like you said earlier, Rich, like an incel or something like that. But he's
2: so dopey, but he's so well intentioned. He just wants to be a good cop. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And he kind of gets to do it at the end a little bit.
5: I think you also like you you jump behind characters like this early on because you know clearly it's you. You're thinking it's clearly not him. I mean, he, 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 even on the because the, the phone call happens at his house and you know, stuff like that. So you're like you're like trying to gather this group of heroes behind you during the movie that you've you've eliminated. So you're like, okay, cool. I, I'm I'm I I can get behind this character. I can like this character, and hopefully they don't die. Mm-hmm. And that happens pretty early on for him.
4: But even at the end, when um he shows up and the music kind of kicks in, he says, "You're not scared, are you?" Like that kind of suggests, like, "Oh, well, maybe he is a killer." They they do that in the trailer too, from what I remember, is they show Dewey with the flashlight, and it's a big mystery.
2: Yeah, it it was the hook. I think the he's saying, Do you like scary movies with the flashlight under his uh? Yeah, under his his face. face. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Now Arquette, obviously, his sister Patricia was in Iron Elm Street Part Three: Dream Warriors. Right. Alexis Arquette was in Bride of Chucky. Louis Arquette was in Waiting for Guffman. And Rosanna Arquette, obviously, (laughs) an acting family, what can I say? Rosanna Arquette, after hours, desperately seeking Susan, a very successful uh, family in terms of acting. His new documentary came out, You Cannot Kill David Arquette, which is about his return to wrestling, and it also kind of talks about his struggles personally. I haven't seen it yet. I I believe Randall Colburn is is a— is a supporter of that film i think he actually interviewed david arquette last year about it so you yeah. should check that out on av club if you so desire um again yeah do get stabbed in the back and it's not the first time by the way at the end of this movie uh next character i'm going to say this off the top i don't think it's hyperbole to say that this character changed popular culture i'm talking about randy meeks played by jamie kennedy He's incredibly knowledgeable about not pop culture from some fictional world like we would get in previous movies or TV shows, but our own world. I mean, this led to self-referential movies or just referential movies. Period. Buffy the Vampire Slayer was right around the corner. I think like, this is the gateway into this new Kevin Williamson pop culture that obviously seeped its way into like Dawson's Creek and other Kevin Williamson movies. So, what, what do you think? Like, when did you first see this? How? What year was it? Do you remember how old you were or how, when you saw this, Rachel? Um. Was this like did this moment pass when you first saw it? Or
3: oh yeah, yeah, I I didn't see this till it was out on like VHS. I think it was. I know I was able to drive because I would babysit a lot for like neighbor kids, and so I would always like rent movies to watch there because I couldn't get away with them watching them at my house. Mm, <laughs> so I would smart. watch them at other people's houses while like
5: while kids. <laughs> smart, slept. That's a good move. Yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so it must have been like two. 2000 so like it had been out for you know a hot minute by the time that I actually got around to seeing it and so I think because of that like I feel lucky that I did see it a little later because by that time I had was a little bit more familiar with some at least the heavy hitters of horror Mm -hmm. so I was able to enjoy like you know Randy's quips and references and stuff a little bit more I definitely didn't catch all of them it's been great like watching it over the years and like seeing which ones I get more and more as like my knowledge has expanded you know totally it continues to grow with you in that way.
4: Yeah, it's, it, it, I agree. Cause obviously at the time I'd seen a lot of them too, but over the years, like, Oh, like they mentioned territory. Train, I finally saw Terror Train for the first time last year, like little things like that that you remember. Oh yeah. They talked about that in scream. Uh, Mac, what do you think about Randy in this movie?
5: Yeah, no, I love them. I, I, this is the character I definitely related with the most. And I, and again, like for me, Having already been watching all these horror films and going through some of the franchises with you and stuff, Justin, and and then seeing this movie and being like, oh my god, like that's us, like that's our character, that's us talking about horror movies, <laughs> like like on a yeah. level that yeah. that's just like normal, like oh well, everybody knows that this, you know, but like no, no one knows that because no one's seen that obscure movie from you know whatever. But I really loved Randy; I thought he was super funny, and I don't think I ever thought he was the killer. But there's a, so this is that thing where I was going to talk about with, was Randy and Stu at the door. Mm. With Sydney,
4: great scene
5: at the end, and you're like, you st- I still didn't know who was the killer, but that was a moment where I genuinely was like, could Randy be in on this? Like, it, it started making me question things that I had just totally dismissed, and I think that that is so good. That's what's so good about this movie is like, I not once thought it was Randy, but even in that moment, you're just like, I just don't know. Like yeah. I really start, you start thinking, trying to think about, like outside of the box, you know. But yeah, I, 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 I love him in this. He's so funny and definitely didn't want, want him to die or be the killer. But
4: Yeah, yeah. Vanderbilt, did you, because you've got a deep knowledge, especially of genre films, uh, did you relate to Randy? Was he somebody that you looked up to?
2: You know when you're when you're when you're a teenager and girls tell you you remind me of that guy from Scream, you you kind of hope that it's Skeet Ulrich, but it is not. It is Randy. I I like Randy. I liked I, I liked the character. I liked the performance. I think I know a little bit more than him though. I, he's, okay. he's oh, okay. Shots fired
4: from Vanderbilt. Yeah. We have to. I bet you Randy.
2: Randy's never seen Evil Laugh. I bet you he hasn't. <laughs>
4: He's he's definitely more of just like the he's, the heavy hitters, and that's and that's yeah. a wrap on him.
2: Poser, Randy's a poser.
4: A very funny character. He listen. He drops a Jerry Lewis reference. I'm not sure how many people got that in 1996, but uh, <laughs> did you leave it live in the mailbox? Did you leave That's my Jerry Lewis impersonation for all of you begging me to stop. For the
2: French, for the French listeners.
4: Interesting career about Jamie Kennedy. I'm talking about Son of the Mask, <laughs> <laughs> Malibu's Most Wanted. And, and, of course, he reteamed with Skeet Ulrich, and as good as it gets, one of the people who beat up Greg Kinnear. That's right. No dialogue. If anybody wants to have a good laugh, you got to go to YouTube and type in KDOC New Year's Eve Jamie Kennedy. He hosted this really disastrous <laughs> New Year's Eve special like 15 years ago, and the highlights are on YouTube. It's very, very funny. Uh, we wish him all the best. All right, Now, here's something we haven't talked about yet, but Rachel, you alluded to her earlier. She was all over the posters she was the first person essentially signed on to this. And this is the movie that kind of relaunched her career. Drew Barrymore as Casey Becker in the first eh, 15 to 20 minutes of Scream. Vanderbilt. Okay, let me ask you this question because we obviously saw this like when it came out, right? And so we knew the right. trailers and everything else. I'm confused because people say that they saw the movie in theaters and were shocked that she died so early. But – I mean, in the
2: trailers, it's
4: it's made pretty clear that she's she dies at the very beginning, and the rest of the movie is response
2: to that. I, I, I don't know if the trailers make it that clear, but I wasn't shocked. But I think that's just because I had seen so many horror movies at that point. It wasn't, yeah. and maybe at sixteen, I didn't understand star power. Like to me, Nev Campbell from Party of Five was as big a star as Drew Barrymore. Maybe I didn't think about it that way. Well, at that so, point yeah, of careers. Yeah, Yeah, it didn't shock me, but in hindsight, like, what a terrific nod to Psycho to start things off.
4: Oh, to kill off somebody early on. By killing off the big name. Yeah, right out the gate. Yeah.
2: Who's on the poster and everything, and I believe that was all deliberate. Well, maybe not in the scriptwriting process because of the way they ended up casting it, but a happy accident, I suppose.
4: Rachel, had that been blown for you when you saw it years later?
3: Yeah, I think it had been blown for me at that point, but I don't think it... It didn't ruin it for me. Like, if anything, no, I like I, I was surprised, I think, about how long that scene is. Cause that scene is like it is really long. For some reason, I thought it would be like a shorter cold open than that. And I mean, I think it's the most powerful kill in the movie because just the way that it plays out. I think the parents are a big part of that. Mm. the fact that you see her parents come home like you never see that oh yeah it's like these kids are always killed and you never see like the after effects (laughs) of what happens
2: or in elm street their parents are like blissfully unaware of everything that's going on i don't think they like their kids
3: yeah so the fact that like her parents were there and she's talking to them on the phone and like they're reacting (sighs) to it and she's right there and they can't help her like you never see that and it just adds this whole other like tragic level of just Intenseness that i that that 's what surprised me about that scene, but I think it 's genius that they they did it that way and killed her off in that way still you still get her on the poster, you still get her involved, but you know turning her dropping out into something like that like that just it 's great <laughs> she she nailed it in that scene
4: yeah, the performance is great, and you really feel like she is dying that 's the creepiest thing is like her voice is now gone yeah. from screaming and then being stabbed and it's hard to pull all that off when you're only in 15 minutes of a movie and to actually have you feel something for somebody, especially in a horror movie. Because, like we discussed a lot in Slasher movies past, it's almost like you get a cheer when somebody gets killed off or something like that. But this movie, it's just this its just a traumatic thing to watch happen. And
2: it sets the tone that nobody's tone. safe, too.
4: Well, it sets the tone for the rest of the series, too, because now we always expect there to be some big star or some big event to lead off all of the movies that's going to try to live up to. Scream, which is almost impossible to do. Um, I think Scream Three just said, nah, "We, you know, we'll talk about all that later on too." Yeah, yeah, I can't get too, too much of that. But Mac, <laughs> what do you think?
5: Oh, I, I, I think she's great. I thought uh, such a such an awesome opening, and yeah, absolutely sets the tone. I totally agree with Rachel on the parent front. I think that is the most disturbing moment of the movie when the parents get home, and or or even when she sees them, she's right there and. Now I'm like, oh fuck! Throw the the phone or whatever you have in your hand, like, so that they hear you, you know. But like in the moment, you're just not thinking that kind of stuff. That's just such a a, a great uh, opening. I always remember being really confused about the Jiffy Pop, though, because <laughs> I didn't oh. know what that was at the time. I was like, what the hell is she doing? Like, <laughs> yeah, microwaveable popcorn. Um, <laughs> I, uh, <with> <laughs> yeah, do they still stuff. my introduction to it?
2: Do they still make Jiffy Pop?
4: Yeah.
5: Oh, yeah. 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 I've, ma- I've made it here multiple times. <laughs> we, had, we, had, we had
2: Jiffy
4: Pop when I was a kid. So, yeah. I never used it. It was always microwavable popcorn.
5: Oh, yeah. Me too growing up. But then when I, I think that's the kind of the novelty of it, like now I see it, I'm like, oh, scream. I always think of Scream and I always like have that in my head when I make it.
4: <laughs> you always think about fires in the kitchen.
5: Yeah. Yeah.
4: Something about that scene, the house where they shot that, you know what was right across the street from that house? No. What? Cujo house. No way! It's the connection. Really? <laughs> Dominion connection. Right. Thanks, for all you Lucid Love fans. we have running across the street, yeah.
5: <laughs> oh, oh, oh! She's supposed to be seventeen in this movie. How old was she during when she uh,
4: shot this? And this is like those things where you're like, oh, I would I think she's probably what twenty-one, twenty-two, something like that.
3: Well, and she had um, what I think is interesting and just adds to her appeal. I found out that I mean she had done Playboy the year before.
4: Mm. Oh,
1: really? So
3: this was like, you know, that was like a, I think that was a pretty big deal. And just like cast her in a different light. Like, obviously she's had a really, I'm going to use interesting for last, lack of a better word, a young life. So like, but that, that was like the final, you know, kind of thing, like just putting her in as a sex symbol, I guess. So yeah. then like,
2: right. you yeah. see
3: her in the film, like. As a 17-year-old, it's kind of hard to
2: believe. Well, but you know. The year the year before is when she famously flashed uh, David Letterman.
4: That's right. That was before oh. <laughs> this. Yeah, she was, uh, like you said, she had a uh, interesting childhood. Um, but I will say, she uh, I've never heard, I think she's been on this, the quote-unquote straight and narrow, as in she seems to be pretty happy over the last 25 years. Hell, she's got her own daytime talk show now.
1: Yeah. So yeah.
4: she made it out to their side, which we can't say about a lot of other actors, especially people who were as famous as she was. I mean, she was extremely famous in the 80s. Yeah,
2: we've got a Barrymore and an Arquette in this movie.
4: Yeah. And a Kennedy. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) 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 No relation. Uh, Anyway, listen, this movie's not the same without that actor, uh, without the character, and especially without that actor, I think, you know, again, if you have some random actor in there, it just isn't going to hit as hard. Or maybe it will. We'll never know, but I'm happy that she's in it. I guess really one, we can talk, let's talk a little bit about, just because I love Deadwood so much, <laughs> W. Earl Brown is Kenny Jones, the cameraman. Uh, some funny lines, some some funny things to bounce off of, you know?
2: What a great character actor.
4: Great character actor. On,
2: on, my, other, on my other show, uh, the Windy City Double Feature uh, Picture Show podcast, we would probably award him the golden hot dog, which we give to our favorite character actor. In, in whatever movies we're talking about.
3: Well, and just the fact that they, like, take the time to kind of develop him at all. Is I know. Let yeah. You know, it just continues <laughs> to. to speak to everything we've talked about. Just, I mean, he could have easily just been, like, a completely thrown away, you know, character. But the fact that they give him a personality and give him some, you know, really great lines and moments, like, it's just, it's, it's
1: great.
4: <laughs> it, it, he also ends up adding to Gale's character because of their hilarious interplay. You know, and yeah. everything's funny bouncing off the two of them, and they also give him that pivotal thing, Mac. I think you talked about earlier the the, the camera delay and him being responsible Just yeah, figuring delay, that out yeah. and telling us thirty seconds, and then his graphic and slightly toned down demise. Also, I think it was originally much bloodier in one of the original cuts that they submitted, but yeah, that's W. Earl Brown, and I love him always, of course. Uh, from Deadwood,
2: that cocksucker.
4: Yeah, that, that's from Deadwood, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Now Henry Winkler, who is definitely best known now for Barry winning awards, Arrested Development, but at the time he had kind of just become more of a director. So casting him as Principal Arthur Hembry, the straight-laced principal, was definitely a take on him playing the cool Arthur Fonzarelli from Happy Days. That obviously is like a 180 in terms of a character, right? I have a question. I had noticed how creepy he was in this movie. You know what I'm talking about? A creepy. He like when the cops are talking to Sydney. He like takes Sydney by the chin. And is like everything's gonna be okay, Sydney. Oh, he's a
5: little handsy. Yeah, he's
4: uh dragging like <laughs> scissors across the chests of the expelled students and stuff like that. I was like, holy, holy moly! Well, I think
5: they, I think they definitely are. kind of like maybe it's the principal too. You know, I think they're trying to make everybody's a suspect. Literally, like, oh yeah. You know,
4: that was another one too.
5: Yeah, I, 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 I dug him as, I also read that that they asked him to go uncredited. They didn't want to overshadow all the, the young
4: upcoming actors and stuff like that. So I thought that was kind of fun. Interesting. I don't um, know how many teens besides my weird
2: mind who even knew who the hell he was.
5: <laughs> I think so. anybody only knew him as the Fonz though. You know what I mean?
2: Like if anything, you know, the, like the Fonz jacket is in in the closet. Oh,
4: I never noticed that.
2: Yeah.
4: Oh, that's fun. Well, wait, there's a reference to another pop culture thing in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so Rachel, you're seeing this in 2000. Were you familiar yeah. with the fonts at all? Because of syndication of high, Happy Days or your parents? Yeah, knew I knew something?
3: I knew about that from my dad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
4: That's where I think most of us oh. were.
3: <laughs> oh, come on. I'm not that young.
2: No. <laughs> <But> like, <laughs> yes. My grandfather would watch it with his children. Grandfather Time. <laughs>
3: yes, I would watch it with <laughs> Grandfather Time. So, yeah, I was familiar with him from that. You know, my dad loved to pull out the, eee, you know, pull out that kind of thing, yeah, and yeah. hitting the jukebox and stuff. So yeah, so I, I I recognized him from that, and I I liked it. It felt very like TV sitcom um, you know, just which makes sense. Oh my god, I can't. Yes, it makes sense that it just would feel that so. way.
1: Yeah.
3: <laughs> um, so I I, I kind of liked that, and it it felt like kind of like Saved by the Bell, like the tor- the kind of like dorky but kind like, you know, Prince trying to
4: be hip, or, you know, yeah. Uh, here's my question. I'm not sure who hasn't chimed in yet, but you can answer this first. Aren't the kids really excited about going to see their principal dead and hanging from a goalpost?
2: <laughs> and it's it's funny because like, they're uh,
4: all just pumped and ready to go. Like there's like nobody saying, "Oh, I don't know," except for Randy. But everybody's just mean, like, "Yes, yeah. let's see him before they take him down." Like,
2: holy. Even as a teenager, I don't think I was that kind of uh, clueless. Like, but it, Williamson Williamson has said that that the principal being killed helped him figure out that third act problem of how to get everybody out of the house. Yeah, cuz that was also
4: added. That was not originally in the, in the script like I think I pointed out earlier, yeah. But I totally buy that. Like kids
5: kids are yeah. shitty, man. Yeah. I, I also yeah, know true. I don't know one kid that liked their principal. So if I heard that, I probably w- I I don't know if I would have been the one to do it like to get everybody to go, but I probably would have been in the car on the way there. Yeah. Just because you just do that with, think about that. You do
4: that with your friends. Like you just, you just go along with it. Like everybody's running dead, bloodied and hanging from a goalpost.
5: I don't think you're thinking of it. Like if you're a kid, you're you're not like we are (sighs) now. Like I wouldn't do that now, but as a kid with all my friends and, I don't know, I'd probably just be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, was, I was drinking at a party. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I probably wouldn't be in the right mind. Uh, yeah.
4: I think it's, I, listen, I think it's a funny scene because of how over the top it is. That's all I'm saying. All right.
5: Very nice listen, that you you <laughs> wouldn't want to do that. that I is, wouldn't want to do
4: that. Well, <laughs> what a great guy I am. Okay. Yeah. We're going to save Cotton Weary, Liev Schreiber for Scream 2. Let's save that discussion. If anybody wants to add anything about the background between the the fathers and the mothers of this movie, or, or feel free to do this now because I have no I have nothing to to really well, discuss.
2: We do need to talk about Joseph Whipp, who plays Sergeant. Yeah, I was going to say no, he's from the, Elm Street chief, he's, in Elm, he's Street. in Elm Street and he's in the Hidden from Elm Street Two. Director Jack Shoulder
4: and the heavy influence, of course, on Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday. <laughs> that was just a one line I wanted to mention
5: from him. Which I love <laughs> when they're in the, when they're talking to Billy's father. And he's like, "Thanks, Hank. We're on top of it." We're on top of that. <laughs> How Thanks. shitty he yeah. is to his father yeah, is so funny. But uh, other than that, yeah. I mean, we could talk about Neil Prescott for a little bit, but like, these people are like in the movie for two seconds.
2: Yeah. One bit of Skeet Ulrich trivia that I neglected to mention was one of his first credited roles is as an extra in 1989's Weekend at Bernie's.
4: Really? Oh God! Yeah. Oh, Weekend at Bernie's makes this, Weekend makes an deadhead. appearance again. <laughs> okay. Uh. Well, wow, a lot of people in this movie, huh? We're going to move on to our next section. We're sticking with tradition. It's a section that we call Great Graphics. Ah!
1: What do you know? A beat my score.
4: <laughs> so the people behind the special effects of this movie, it's KNB effects. You might have heard of them before, because if you ever watched a horror movie over the last 30 years... Chances are that they were involved. Robert Kurtzman, Greg Nicotero, Howard Berger. They've done a million things, from Dances with Wolves to Spawn, from Kill Bill to Piranha 3D. Greg Nicotero's running Walking Dead now, and Creepshow on Shudder. This movie is not, the series for that matter, it's not like some giant effects-a-palooza like the other franchises that we've covered, but it's still quite graphic. So, I mean, for instance, the opening scene was heavily cut down. Before it was distributed out there, especially Steve, who we didn't talk about, God bless him, with his guts coming out of his stomach, that was cut down considerably in theaters. Casey's yeah. death was cut down. We mentioned Tatum's death was a little trimmed down. Uh, Kenny's death, I mean, everything got kind of hacked up, ha ha ha, by uh, the MPAA. But what do we think about the special effects and how they were utilized in this in this movie? Because uh, I think it's still a pretty good job, even though it's kind of reserved compared to other movies, Mac.
5: Yeah, no, I I think it's pretty solid. I mean, I I the the guts hanging out of uh Drew Perrymore, like that that's disturbing. Uh yeah, definitely Steve's death. And even even though we only see it for a second, like Rose McGowan's head when it gets crushed, like that is a good that is jarring. Yeah, it's it's funny because it, there's a lot of just like stalking and stuff in the film. I mean, there's a lot of blood, but it doesn't it doesn't really doesn't look like corn syrup but <laughs> like they mentioned the movie but
4: well the blood looks great in this movie too i think yeah Especially it does it does climax, look really good you
5: know? yeah yeah i mean i don't have a lot to say other than i think it really works and it doesn't detract from the film there's not there wasn't a scene where i was like nah, i'll buy it you know oh i do love the blood on the windshield <laughs>
4: that's fun okay rachel thoughts on these special effects the
2: graphics
3: always, it's always the right color. It's funny, they point that mm. out like later. I can think it's Stu that's or somebody I don't know who's like, it's too red or whatever. Well, like, they say it, it when right. they're
2: watching Halloween, yeah. One of the other kids so, does, yeah. I think oh, they yeah. do a really
3: great job at like making it look really real and like the right amount, like it's not like spurting everywhere, like excessive, like it is mm. really like realistic i think so i yeah i think they i think they nail it in that way that not and make it scarier by making it actually more true to maybe what would actually happen
4: well that's yeah you tie into the reality of it all even though everything's kind of heightened you still believe it's happening that's the key vanderbilt
2: i think like having just you know done a whole season on uh the friday the 13th movies where the most of not most of them but a lot of those movies the effects are the centerpiece they're the best things about them but because Scream gets so much attention for its script, for Wes Craven's involvement, uh, for the cast, I do think that the fact that K- the K and B guys did this gets you know a little bit overlooked, and it's also not a film that is built around the effects. But when the effects yeah. do come, they are gangbusters. The and I, you know, it's funny I didn't even think about it when I was when I was sixteen because I, I don't know if you're just kind of a little more desensitized, but looking back at it with a critical eye and you're old uh, as an older person, how violent this film, it, it's not a lot of kills, but the violence that happens is uh, severe.
5: Oh, especially the last act. Yeah.
4: <laughs> Something else that was yeah. cut down also is when, when Stu and Billy are stabbing at each other, you're supposed to see like blood dripping down from them too. I mean, the movie was just heavily censored, but it didn't ultimately affect the movie. Like you said, I think it still yeah. works tremendously well.
2: It works well without it. It's just better with it.
4: Of course. You know, we're having a good time. It's the horror movies. So, hey, good job, Canby. We appreciate what you did. We appreciate all the work you've done over the years. But let's move on to our next section. I'm not sure how long this section is going to be either, but uh, we're going to talk about our favorite kill. It's a section that we're calling Movies Make Psychos More Creative.
1: Stop it, Billy. with you all right? I can't take any
0: more. I'm feeling woozy here.
4: I'm not going to even... <laughs> Tease suspense, the best kill and sequence is Casey's murder at the very beginning of this movie. For me, um, no, if I have to, uh, I, I've said my piece. I think it's a brilliant scene. I think it, uh, you know, the movie's not the same without it. That's why I can say. What Rachel what about you? What's your what's the most effective uh, kill for you?
3: Well, that that one is, and just like as I was saying earlier, for the you know because of the parents and just mm. like you know Drew's performance there, like it's it's a short scene, but she's. It's so earnest and like you feel her fear and like when she recognizes, you know, that takes the mask off and that moment that, you know, that really quick moment of recognition is really scary. And just you feel her age, I think, you know, that they're trying to set up, even though she doesn't look like it, the fact that she's calling out for her parents and yeah, huh. ugh, it's just, yeah, it's it's really emotional, I think. So that one for sure. Now, I mean I also I do like the end scene a lot too, but that's more humorous to me almost. Yeah, you know, I think that the the opening scene is actually legitimately the scariest for
4: sure. Mac, what about you?
5: Yeah, it's the it's gotta be the opening for me. Uh just it's iconic, you know. Um nothing nothing beats that. And it yeah, it sets the tone for the film. It's, Absolutely. Because there aren't a lot of other moments like that. I mean, you know, Sydney gets stalked, you know, a lot after that. But it's not like they they single out other random people and do that same kind of thing. Because it wasn't random, as we find out later on, you know. Yeah. Stu had a relationship with Casey. But, uh, yeah, it's it's that opening. It's just fantastic.
2: Hey Vanderbilt, what about I mean, you? I, I agree with everything you guys are saying. But I think that death isn't necessarily what makes that. I think it's the whole sequence.
1: Mm.
2: Whereas if you're going to talk like you know, talk about late era Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Street where you had to keep getting more and more creative and sometimes a little bit silly. It's Tatum in the garage door.
4: Oh, sure. I mean, yeah, we talked, yeah.
5: Yeah, that's true. I mean, you're thinking about actual death.
2: Like, when you, th- when you yeah. think of Scream, if, think you, of if you think him. of the deaths from Scream, the kill, you think of Tatum, you know, first off, getting stuck, going up, and then the head getting crushed. It's very, like I said, late era, late era Friday the 13th because it's brutal, but it's comical because mm. it's so like th- this couldn't really happen <laughs> but you buy it in that moment that's
4: the selling point of kevin williamson's script right It's that you buy everything happening despite all the obvious references to other things the obvious you know the over- it's just a success what can i say all right well this next section is also a brand new section that we are going to i mean we're talking about you want to talk about burning through a section get ready is we're going to talk about the movie references, specifically the horror movie references made in Scream in a section we're calling Do You Like Scary Movies? Do you want to die? Is that the best you can do? Because Billions do were much more original. Hey! All right, so we can let's just go around in a circle. I'll, I'll list people off, and then we'll, we'll just scratch off so we don't repeat, we don't repeat ourselves. <laughs> I've got a lot here. Uh, specifically, we're, I'm trying to save it to like horror and suspense movies. You know what I mean? So. Let's uh, let's try to do that. So at the very beginning, I'll, I'll start this off. Casey says in an answer to Father Death slash Ghostface that movies after the first Elm Street suck. Ha ha. That's a Wes Craven being a little uh, clever about his own self there, letting that be in there. So that's the first one I got there is the Elm Street reference. Uh, Rachel, what do you have?
3: Well, I think the phone call itself. I mean, that's, you no. know, Black Christmas. And oh, my God, I'm blanking on it. What's the other one, though? Like.
4: Oh, like Halloween. Um, when mentioned. a stranger calls.
3: When a stranger calls. Oh, yeah. oh sure. So sure, I sure. think that, I just think that itself is a reference.
4: Agreed. Agreed. Uh, Vanderbilt.
2: I'm Cruz's penis.
4: In the horror film, all the right moves. <laughs> uh, Mac. <laughs> no. <laughs> Mac. What do you got? Yeah, that's a reference.
5: I was gonna say the. Is, did the does the father Casey's father say drive down to the Mackenzies? Yes, which, which is, is a reference Halloween? to
4: the end of Halloween yeah. with with Laurie Strode. I've got. I mentioned this earlier but halloween theme plays during the halloween question to casey at the beginning mm-hmm. rachel
3: i mean the question obvious the questions when they talk about like you know who who's the killer in friday the 13th the most famous oh. <laughs> question i think in the yeah whole. yeah well no no I, that's what, I, I can't believe i just said that no the, the most famous question is do you know
2: specific question
3: yeah but like yeah. you know the who's the killer in the friday the 13th
2: yeah uh vanderbilt well, I just wanted to do a quick aside about that. I remember sitting in the theater when that question hit and he starts saying that she's wrong. I'm sitting there like, what the fuck? She's 100% right. And I had forgotten all about his mother.
4: <laughs> wow. Like, see, I was one of the rare people in the theater. I felt that that did know the answer.
2: Oh yeah. I was, <laughs> but, um, I was very
4: proud of myself. I was very Randy. I'm sure yeah, at the time.
2: Yeah. I spit on your garage, a reference to uh, I spit on your grave.
4: But that's from Tatum, right? Says Tatum. That. Tatum. Yes. I'm trying to keep up with my own self here. Uh, let's see here. How about Mac? What do you got? Billy Loomis. Dr. Loomis. Yep. And also Sam Loomis from Psycho and Halloween. Halloween is actually an homage to Sam Loomis from Psycho.
5: And speaking of Halloween real quick, something we mentioned just a second ago, there is no blood in that sequence when the guy yells out, oh, come on The blood's too red. But when Bob gets killed, there's no blood in that scene, oh, no, right? I don't you see, see, see blood in Bob
4: at all, no. no. no so I, 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 that's uh, my
5: one problem with it. It's so specific <laughs> oh because it gets everything Randy. so right. right. And when, when it gets to that scene, I was like, wait a minute. I was
4: like, who's this fucking asshole that doesn't know Halloween? <laughs> it like, doesn't did, make sense to me. Did I just give one or did Mac did you just give one? I can't remember. Matt gave one. Okay, okay. Oh, it was me. It was me. Billy mentions uh, the, watching The Exorcist edited for TV and Linda Blair shows up as a reporter shortly thereafter, destroying the time-space continuum. <laughs> Rachel?
3: <laughs> they mentioned basic instinct. Ah, uh, yeah. Multiple times, actually. actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, a
4: few times throughout, yeah. right? And that movie yeah. was like, the movie came out five years earlier, but hey, you know, I guess it was still in the popular conscience. Vanderbilt.
2: Town that dreaded sundown, uttered by Tatum again.
4: Yep, yep. it's places like the town that dreaded sundown, Mac. Billy
5: sneaking into the room like Glenn in Nightmare on Elm Street.
4: Oh, uh, I didn't think about that. Okay, this is a good one. I've got uh, Tatum and Dewey's mom is Frances Lee McCain, who plays the mom in Gremlins.
3: Oh, goodness. I missed uh, that. Oh, wow. <laughs> Rachel. Uh, so Tatum's crop top with the uh, 10 I, on it. Yes. I think yes. that's a Nightmare on yeah. Elm Street.
4: <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. All that one, yeah. Vanderbilt.
2: Oh uh, well, this is kind of uh, goes back to what Mac was saying about the the line about the blood. Randy mentions about Jamie Lee Curtis being nominated for Terror Train, and I don't know what the hell she got nominated for. Yeah, a Juno Award?
4: <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs>
2: Saturn Award? <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. So Terror Train. Okay, Mac.
4: I can't believe
5: we—if someone's talked about this, then I missed it. But Wes Craven as Fred. We have the not home, talked about that. Wes Craven as Fred <laughs> the janitor. And makeup. Um, heavy makeup. Yeah,
4: okay. That's funny. Uh, Stu says Sydney has branded Billy as Candyman. Rachel?
3: Which one do I want to go with? Well, I think when the, the TV kill, I mean, the first thing I think of is, you know, welcome to primetime, bitch. Mm, that's <laughs> so. a good
1: one.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. Elm Street 3.
5: We yeah. could say Stu is killed by Halloween. <laughs> there
2: we go. He's killed by a horror movie. He's killed yeah. by media. Yeah. 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 Vanderbilt? Yeah, they had a Werewolf movie with E.T.'s mom. <laughs> that's a good line,
5: Mac psycho uh, we, we all go a little mad sometimes Billy like it, we go a little mad sometimes said,
4: yeah. at the end when Sydney's confused about why Billy has all that quote unquote blood on him he says corn syrup same stuff they use for pig's blood in Cary Carrie. Cary Carrie, mm-hmm. 1976 Cary oh, Rachel
3: somewhere they mention Casper I think it's Tatum
2: <laughs> yes <laughs> that's right oh,
3: okay. I'm to go, go
2: Casper uh, Vanderbilt if they watched prom night, they'd save time.
4: That's another good one. What's Leatherface doing here? Randy to stew about belly. I jumped you. Sorry. Go no, ahead. No, it's okay.
5: Uh Tatum mentions uh she calls Ghostface Casper. Did someone say that?
4: Rachel just said that, <laughs> yeah.
5: Okay. Then uh they mentioned Trading Places.
4: The <laughs> horror film Trading Places. Okay, Rachel. Uh
3: they mentioned Silence of the Lambs. Did anybody see that?
4: Yes, Billy talks about Jodie Foster and *Song of the Lambs*. Oh, Tatum says you're starting to sound like some Wes Carpenter flick or something. Hmm. Vander- I've got—that's all I got. If you don't have anything written down, I can—I can—I can blow through. These no, songs I got too. nothing written down. So, how many want *Evil Dead*? How many want *Hellraiser*? Randy asked the party. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And they go with Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it, folks. If you—if you know of any that we didn't mention, or we Wait, didn't mention earlier some. on, oh, Mac, you do have some more. Sorry, I thought you'd have a list.
5: No, well, this is, this is actually a, this is a stretch, but when the kids rush to the football field, one of the kids yells out, hi-ho, silver. Oh, no, I, I,
4: <laughs> and, no uh, I just, I know that's a reference. Lone... And I like that,
5: that might be a reference to uh, silver uh, from it. <laughs> um, no, but uh, we mentioned the bad seed.
4: No, no, there you go. She was afraid she was going to be a bad seed like her mom.
1: Yeah.
5: And also, uh, Mike's commenting in our comments here. He's listening in as we. Yeah, I know,
4: but he was. He, we already mentioned the Elm Street window thing.
5: Oh, oh dude! No, the um, scream. The Jamie Lee Curtis. The si- the mother's boys is a sign for in the
2: video store. Oh,
4: right. you're, you're right. right. There's also a bunch of signs yeah, for yeah. clerks. Uh, a Miramax films. Also, a lot uh, of clerks uh, posters hanging up. Miramax's
2: okay. smoke is on top of the TV at the party.
4: Uh, A somewhat famous director directed that, too, by the way. I'll have to figure this out while we're going over our next category, which is a section in which we're going to give our final thoughts. And it's called One Last Scare.
5: Randy said the killer's always superhuman.
0: Yeah, well, he wasn't superhuman, do he? He wasn't superhuman at all.
4: I figured we would do this on a scale of what, one to five ghost face masks or something like that? That's, that makes sense. Right? What, what more specific, how much more specific can we get?
5: I'm surprised we didn't come up with this beforehand. We never yeah. do.
4: We've never done. We never had a <laughs> powwow we? about what we're going to do. Why start now? Why start now? So let's ghost give this face masks. on a scale of one to five father death masks. <laughs> you know what? I'll go first. How about that? Uh, This movie changed the game for a number of years. It launched careers. It relaunched careers, uh, especially with the case of Drew Barrymore. Continued Nev Campbell and her path for a while. Uh, Matthew Lillard became a great character after this. Everybody's still on the news in some capacity. It brought Wes Craven back to the mainstream because he had kind of disappeared mainstream-wise for a long time over the last decade before. How about this? It's still just as funny today as it was 25 years ago. You can't say that about a lot of movies. I think it's just as effective as it was 25 years ago, despite knowing all the twists and turns, despite of all the sequels, despite of all the conversations surrounding it. I was very pleasantly surprised to discover it has still lost none of its impact. I'm going to give this on a Scream rating, not in terms of the overall history of movies, but in terms of the Scream franchise five ghost face masks out of five ghost face masks for me i think it's uh as good as it gets so mac what about you
5: yeah this is a five five masker for sure five masker i mean when you're watching this and, and even 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 scenes where like you know when billy uh says stupid and hits himself in the head I mean, nothing can detract from the fact that this is one of the best horror films of all time i'll just say it. yeah i think it's so good and and uh, still, really holds up. It's fantastic, fun time. I you're not I'm never bored watching this. It's always fun, and I like 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 Rachel was saying earlier, just revisiting it as a horror fan as you continue to see these films because so many things are mentioned, and getting more and more and more in, invested in that sense has just been really fantastic. And uh, I don't think anything uh, touches this in my opinion in the in the franchise. Uh, so five ghost masks. Five five grandfather of time masks uh, with, uh, with some corn syrup on top.
4: Uh, Vanderbilt, your thoughts on grandfather time?
2: I think when you look at movies, it's, I think especially horror movies, you have to look at their legacy, too. Uh, there's plenty of great horror movies that didn't change the game, but I think Scream ranks up there with Psycho, The Exorcist, Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street as that game changer, like you said. And like, 25 years on. So you see, you have to look at the imitators, too, and for better or worse. And sometimes a movie as influential as Halloween or Nightmare on the Street kind of also ruins horror for a while, too, because everybody tries to recapture. Same thing with, like, everybody who tried to recapture Tarantino's vibe after Pulp Fiction, and they just don't get it right. But I think it, it's easy to maybe conflate the originator with the knockoff. And I think Scream transcends all that. And I think Scream actually is when people couch their opinion and describe a movie as a fun movie when they're really kind of they don't want to admit that it's just not that great. <laughs> I think Scream is like the definition of what a fun movie is—a fun horror movie. It's it's untouchable. And I think the imitators they can they they tried and try, but nobody did it. No nobody does it better. To quote the James Bond song. Uh, five out of five. Thank you, all time.
4: Thank you, Carly Simon. Uh, Rachel.
3: Yeah, this is gonna. This is gonna be a five from me, dog. This is gonna be a. <laughs> this is gonna be a five. <laughs> grandfather Time, Masker. Yes. E.T. Yeah, I mean personally, I owe a lot to this film because I was only eleven when it actually came out. But in the, you know, in the wake of it, all the films that it inspired, like those late '90s, early 2000s films, were like really what like fueled my interest in horror because I didn't have older siblings and I didn't have anybody to show me some of the classics but it was seeing all of those those teenage faces you know Mm. teenage those 30 year old (laughs) faces on the you know on the wall at the video store that really got me interested and what gave me access to a lot of mainstream horror films so I personally owe it a lot for that but I've also just loved how it's You know, watching it over the years, how it holds up and how it changes, and how it remains relevant and still touches on things that are going on, you know, societally. (laughs) And I think that that's just really interesting. And I mean, that's something that horror does so well in general. But this one just has a power that can't be denied. And it's, but it's also so fun. Just like Mike was saying, like it's so fun and enjoyable to watch. So it's just a perfect combination of elements for me so yeah five and five five
2: <laughs> to to piggyback on one comment you said like, like yeah about it being fun but it is also so ultra violent at times that the fact that west craven and kevin williamson could tread that line is mm-hmm. impressive
4: i agree it yeah. was something he didn't really do very well in like last house on the left for instance <laughs> yeah <laughs> a little awkward <laughs> Well, let's give our final plugs here. Um, You can find me here, obviously, and on all the great social media networks that have overtaken all of our lives. And I'm back on the Losers Club as well. And uh, Rachel, you're also on the Losers Club podcast, and so is Mac. And Vanderbilt, I know you've got uh, a podcast that that you've been working on as well.
2: Yeah, I got my new podcast, uh, Windy City Double Feature Picture Show, where myself and my co-host, Adam Karsten, uh, we uh, find a double feature that played around the Chicagoland area uh, from the 60s and beyond. Up to We've done a lot of 70s episodes. Uh, and we uh, give a little, history. we talk about the movies, of course, but we give a little history of the theater that it played at and uh, what was going on around Chicago at the time. And you can find us on Instagram at Windy City Double Feature and find us on Twitter at Windy City d uh, d f p s we post I, I i'm enjoying doing this show but i also am enjoying uh posting all the old adverts and uh local listings times. from from the the time that the movies come out and of course you can find me uh, at halloweenies and at m at mike vanderbilt on twitter
4: now rachel where else can people find you um online in addition to losers club and social media of course
3: yeah, so I'm a I'm a senior contributor for Nightmare on Film Street, so I've got a few monthly columns there and you know some other stuff that pops up from time to time. I also contribute pretty regularly to Roomorg, their online presence there, so awesome. you can find me lurking about on Roomorg a lot. Of course, the socials. I'm on Twitter at VinylGirl. That's three R's, G-R-R-R-L.
4: First two were taken. On Twitter.
3: <laughs> well, yeah.
4: <laughs> and, and the first one was taken, though. <laughs>
3: yeah so yeah you can find me there all the time
4: well yeah i'm justin gerber seven because i think i canceled my twitter account six <laughs> times before that uh, you know, mac it, anything else you i, want I was
2: your... gonna i wanted to add in my 20s i dated a, a girl whose uh aam screen name was dj vinyl girl nice wow. i like uh, her <laughs> Oh, no, she was cool she was cool chick
4: only spun the vinyls mac <laughs> speaking of vinyl well not necessarily vinyl but digital uh you
2: want to plug your Bandcamp? <laughs>
5: Yeah, it's uh mckenziejames.bandcamp.com. I've got some music on there.
2: Really cool stuff too.
5: Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, you can also it's also on a lot of streaming platforms now if you just look up McKenzie James. It's on app it's on iTunes, it's on Spotify and all that stuff. But uh other than that, yeah, I'm on the losers club and uh definitely on this. I'm really looking forward to the rest of the episodes, the rest of the year cuz it's exciting to not only go into the Scream franchise but also uh, Just some of the movies that influenced and or were influenced by it. And Mac,
4: what a transition, because that's what I'm going to talk about right now. What movie are we going to be covering next month? We're not going to tell you. It's not going to be Scream 2. Scream 2 we're going to be covering, I think, in either, I think in April or May. But we are going to be discussing, like I said, a movie that is either specifically referenced in Scream or Scream more or less pays homage to. Thank you to Kevin Williamson and thank you to Wes Craven. So... Until then, please make sure you spread the word about Halloweenies and definitely check out our Patreon page. We've got a lot more episodes on non-franchise horror. We've got some great audio commentaries up there. You can find that at patreon.com backslash Halloweenies pod. And speaking of coming up with things on the fly, what's our sign off this year? Oh, we, <laughs> we, like we, scary we discussed movies? it. It's, we'll oh, be right we'll be back. Right back. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everybody.